Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Alaska, the most remote part of the United States, so much uninhabited land. In total area, it's twice the size of Texas with over 375 million acres. It's bigger than Texas, California, and Montana combined. And it has less people living there than North Dakota, just slightly more people than Vermont. You can really get away from people in Alaska. So many places where you can find yourself with nobody else around for miles and miles and miles. An Alaska resident, Robert Hansen, an Anchorage-based baker chose to use this uninhabited remoteness to his raping and murderous advantage for over a decade. In the late 1970s, Anchorage police began receiving steady reports about missing prostitutes and topless dancers. Initially, these disappearances caused little concern, as such girls were notorious for leaving at a moment's notice, usually without telling anyone where they were going. But then their bodies began to be found, and soon Alaskan police knew they had a serial killer in their midst. We take a look at Alaska, America's 49th state, and its most notorious serial killer, Robert Hansen, aka the Butcher Baker, today on Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Hello, Meat Sacks. Happy Monday. Welcome back to the cult of the curious. Welcome back to more true crime after a brief historical break. I'm Dan Cummins, a.k.a. Master Sucker, a.k.a. The Suck Lord, a.k.a. Prophet of Nimrod, and neither a butcher nor a baker. Unless tater tot casserole counts, I can bake the shit out of one of those. Cream of mushroom soup, green beans, ground beef, tater tots, Lowry seasoning salt, 350 degrees, and then get the fuck in my belly where you will not stay long because you will tear my insides apart. You are listening to Time Suck. Recording today in the Suck Dungeon in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Reverend Dr. Joe motherfucking Paisley. Zach, scriptkeeper Flannery. The last day before vacation. Recording this two weeks ahead of time. Hoping the world still exists. 
Hope you're not listening to this in some kind of dystopian, post-apocalyptic nightmare. Hope the world didn't fall apart uh, in just two short weeks. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, praise Bojangles, and fuck Robert Hansen. Thanks again to our Patreon Space Lizards for helping us donate $2,600 this month to 100-plus abandoned dogs of Everglades, Florida Rescue. Link in the episode description if you'd like to find out more or donate more to this no-kill shelter yourself. Uh, got some tour dates coming up real uh, pretty soon now. Going to be in Cincinnati, Ohio, West Liberty Funny Bone, July 26th, 27th. Going to be in Charlotte, North Carolina at the Comedy Zone, August 1st through the 3rd. Richmond, Virginia at the Funny Bone, August 4th. August 9th and 10th at the Orlando, Florida Improv. And then uh, Ant Hill Kids Suck. August 11th, Sunday in Orlando. Thursday, August 29th, Hollywood Showbiz. Going to be at the Comedy Store in Hollywood, California. And then I'll be at the other Comedy Store in La Jolla down by San Diego, August 30, 31st, September 1st. Uh, my new vinyl album, Feel the Heat, is out today. Today, as long as the world is, you know, still around and all that good stuff. I, I'm thinking odds are it is. Uh, the Fuck Chuck story, the burn of my ween on a heater story, and more on wax. Various limited edition pressings available right now from the Romanus Record Vinyl Gods. The link to buy this album in today's episode description. Just click that link to go to the Romanus Record Shopify store. Another cool tee in the store today reminds me of the shirts I wore as a kid in the best possible way. Reminds me of tees that I wore in first and second grade when I was living in Anchorage, Alaska, home of today's subject. Old school He-Man Master of the Universe vibes on a t-shirt right now. It's a Suckmaster King of the Lizards ringer tee. And if you don't like or need a ringer tee, check it out. Just for the Axis Apparel design work. Very cool. Very like a sci-fi pulp vibe. It's a, it's a work of art on, on t-shirt. It's an anvil, 100% cotton ringer. Also made out of 100% Lemurian, three and a half dimensional invisibility ability. Also made out of 100% David Icke power chakras. Also made out of some shit that I can't even talk about because the Raelians made me promise not to. Those alien worshipers, they told me to tell you guys, I can don't even worry about it. But uh, for real, at least check out the design. Hail Axis Apparel. I love all these just limited runs they're doing, just, uh, you know, getting so many different types of products out there so different suckers can hopefully find something they like. And now it's time. It's time. It's time to dive into another Space Lizard chosen topic a dark one, a fascinating one, Robert the Butcher Baker Hansen. Robert Hansen was a serial rapist with at least 30 victims that survived, and a minimum of 17 women were raped and murdered. Hansen, like too many others, was a serial killer who got away with serial killing because he didn't come across like a serial killer. To the people around him, seemed like a nice guy. Family man, donut, you know, baker. Who makes delicious-ass chocolate cake donuts and hunts women in the woods? In a perfect world, nobody. In this world, at least Robert Hansen has done that, has lived that reality. Hansen was an award-winning hunter who put his hunting skills to use on human beings. He was also a very successful bakery owner. So weird. Local police buying donuts made by the guy they're thinking about, you know, how they're going to catch while they're eating those donuts. The majority of today's suck is going to take place in a big old time suck timeline that we're going to jump into after hearing about today's first sponsor. Time suck today is brought to you by Away Travel. Away offers high quality luggage at a much lower price by cutting out the middleman, selling them directly to you. Choose from nine colors and four sizes, the carry-on, the bigger carry-on, both of which are compliant with all major U.S. airlines, the medium or the large. 
All suitcases made with premium German polycarbonate, which is lightweight, unrivaled in strength and impact resistance. And the 360-degree spinner wheels guarantee a smooth ride. Smooth as Yacht Rock. Best of all, both sizes of the carry-on are able to change anything that's powered by a USB cord. And thanks to the lifetime warranty, if anything breaks, Away will fix or replace it. Try it for 100 days, and if at any point you decide it's not for you, return it for a full refund, no questions asked. I'm on vacation right now. As this episode comes out in Peru and Mexico with my wife, Lindsay, Kyler, Monroe, and we have three Away suitcases with us. Two large suitcases and one bigger carry-on. And they are awesome. Uh, I've tried other suitcases. Most break in the first four months because I fly so much, 100,000 to 150,000 miles a year. I'll put 70 pounds of merch in the big suitcase and that breaks most big suitcases. Breaks their wheels in about 10 to 15 trips, I've noticed. Not these away suitcases. Literally not anything uh, has broken in any of the suitcases I've owned from away and that is rare from some uh, somebody who's owned a lot of suitcases. I've been using the carry-on for over a year now. I've put about 75,000 miles on one of those big boys. Nothing. Still still smooth wheeling down the concourse. So get your money's worth with an extremely durable suitcase. Save money. For $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com slash timesuck. Use promo code timesuck during checkout. That's awaytravel.com slash timesuck, promo code timesuck for $20 off a suitcase. Link in that episode description. Timesuck timeline right now. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. We're marching into Iowa. February 15th, 1939, the day after Valentine's Day, a baby boy is born in Estherville, Iowa's Coleman Hospital. This baby boy will grow up to be a man who will not become some kind of Valentine's romantic lover. Maybe if he would have been born just one day earlier, maybe... That would have fixed everything. Maybe Cupid could have softened him up a little bit. Probably not. This baby is Robert Christian Hansen. He's born to a Danish immigrant baker named Christian Hansen and his wife, Edna. And he'll soon become an insecure, troubled, angry monster of a meat sack. Jobs were scarce in Estherville, a quaint little town of roughly 6,000 people, a town mostly famous for a 455-pound meteorite that fell to earth a few miles north of Estherville in 1879. So in 1942, and Robert was three, his family headed west. They moved to Richmond, California, just north of San Francisco on the San Francisco Bay, where they would live for five years. And in Richmond, Christian and Edna would quickly tire of the hustle and grind of trying to pound out a living in a much more populated area. They longed for the comparatively simple life of small town Iowa, and they saved money to move back and open their own bakery. 1947, the Hansons returned to Iowa with their now 10-year-old son and their two-year-old daughter, and they settled in Pocahontas, Iowa small town 125 miles northwest of Des Moines. Founded in 1870 within the county of the same name, Pocahontas was one of many towns created during the rapid settlement of the flat, fertile Midwest Corn Belt after the Civil War. The town was named after that famous Virginian Indian princess whose benevolence and interventions on behalf of the Jamestown settlers in the 1600s had made her the symbol of the American Indian welcoming Europeans into the New World. The basic ethnic mix of the town and its surrounding farms established by German, Bohemian, Scandinavian, and Irish immigrants. Lots of immigrants. Robert's dad was one of these immigrants. Pocahontas epitomized the wholesome small-town Americana of mid-20th century America. Lifestyle portrayed in shows like Leave it to Beaver, Father Knows Best. 
Pocahontas had a town grain elevator. The railroad came through town. It had a cute little main street with a hotel, a blacksmith, machinery and car dealers, grocery stores, produce shore, or stores, produce shores. There was produce shores. There was a sea of lettuce somewhere near downtown. You could stand on the banks, just admire all the greenery. Now there's hardware and repair stores. It had a nine hole golf course, 60 by 120 foot swimming pool built by the Works Progress Administration during the depression. On Main Street, there was also the Rialto Theater, showing the latest in Hollywood movies. Showbiz! And then in 1949, Pocahontas got a donut shop. The October 20th, 1949 edition of the Pocahontas Record Democrat carried an ad for Robert's parents' new bakery, saying Mr. and Mrs. Chris Hansen announced the opening of their home bakery, inviting people to come in and get acquainted and inspect the modern bakery and enjoy free coffee and donuts. I love that they encourage them to inspect it. I just picture small to people like, ah, oh, just, just walking back and looking at the machine. Really? So that's where the little donut holes, that's the thing that makes them fascinating. That's amazing. Uh, Chris Hansen had learned the baking trade in his native Denmark, home of the Danish sweet-ass bread with some cream, maybe some cheese, maybe some cream cheese, maybe some fruit compote in the middle before immigrating to the United States at the age of 20. The Danes. Masters of the pastry. If you had to pick one nation to buy some tasty-ass bread from, Denmark, not a bad choice. Followed closely, randomly, by North Korea. Origin of the apple fritter. Mm-hmm. You ever had a North Korean apple fritter? You haven't lived in constant fear and poverty and sadness unless you've had a stale, moldy North Korean apple fritter that's the first nourishment of any kind you've been allowed to, to eat after being beaten for several days in a government cage. But seriously, Chris Hansen was a skilled baker and his bakery on the main street of this uh, small town in Iowa thrived. Also, this Chris, Chris Hansen, not the same Chris Hansen of To Catch a Predator. Same name, very different era, very different person. Uh, when they moved to Pocahontas, the Hansen family lived in a small apartment above the family bakery. And at 2 a.m., oh, this is, uh, no, no way I'd want to wake up at 2 a.m. 2 a.m., the Hansons would get up. Actually, they would get up before 2 a.m. At 2 a.m., they would walk downstairs and work would begin. The bakery did well enough to allow the Hansons to buy a modest three-bedroom house, just two or three houses from the edge of town, putting a whole four blocks between their workplace and their new home. And this new commute to work drastically changed the Hanson family life. Now having to account for distance and traffic since they no longer work directly above the bakery, the Hansons would often have to head out for work by, say, 1.58 a.m. instead of 2. And in the winter, when it was important to put on more layers of clothing, sometimes the Hansons would have to leave at like 1.57 a.m. And something that Chris's frustration with this new commute is what led to Robert becoming a serial killer for two to three minutes every morning. He'd just storm around the house, just yell, just, you know, just yelling, I can be asleep right now. Oh, we had to move to the edge of town, Edna. It's killing me, Edna. I'm, I'm a city man, Edna. That's not true. Uh, acquaintances recalled that the Hanson house was very well kept, always very clean. Edna was a meticulous housekeeper. Chris Hansen was described as being a hard-nosed authoritarian figure, an old-world father, very religious and very strict. Sweet. Fun dad. Hashtag fun dad. Another one of those parents. Uh, over and over, we come across uh, this type of parenting in the suck verse. Very religious plus very strict seems to create so many monsters. I can't think of one serial killer I've read about where when researching their childhood, I've come across something like, he was raised by laid back, firm but fair, loving parents who made him go to church on Sundays until he was 13. And then they stopped forcing him 
Instead, they just hoped that he would carve out his own relationship with God, for they were wise enough to understand that once he was an adult and left their home, they wouldn't be able to force him to bend to the will of their God as they interpreted it. So why cram their religion down his fucking throat in the first place? Which would probably just cause him to resent it later and have a lot of anger issues. Chris worked himself and his family hard, especially his only son, Robert. Robert started working around the bakery shortly after the family opened it, and his responsibilities and hours would steadily increase as he grew older. Getting up to work for several hours before you go to school, probably not going to enhance anyone's junior high or high school scholastic experience. Robert would later express resentment over how hard he was worked as a kid, saying, when I was a young boy, I worked in my dad's shop, and I'd get maybe 35 to 45 cents a day. When I got to be a sophomore, junior, senior, I wouldn't even get a dollar a day. That would work out to about 10 bucks a day there at the end when adjusted for inflation. So he, he did have good reason to gripe about this. In addition to being angry over feeling like he had, you know, to work too much as a kid, wasn't paid enough for that work, Robert Hansen also had a severe stutter, which added further frustration to his childhood. He'd stutter his whole life, and he'd feel that this stuttering is part of the reason that the girls he was interested in weren't very interested in him. He stuttered so badly in junior high and high school, he'd try to talk to a teacher or classmate, literally not be able to get any words out that made sense, and he'd end up just walking away mid-stutter, humiliated. And of course, this being the 1950s when bully shaming wasn't something anyone really talked about, he was, I'm sure, well, and and as we'll learn, ruthlessly mocked. He also wasn't a real big dude. I imagine he was pushed around in the hall more than a few times, some books slapped out of his hands, maybe those books kicked down the hall a bit, tripped, all that fun stuff. Stickers put on his back, you know, kick me, that kind of thing. Maybe it said, kick me, you know, if they were were creative, creative bullies. Also, uh, once he got into high school, he developed horrible acne to make life just a little bit sweeter. He had acne that would leave his face severely scarred for the rest of his life. In later years, he would recall his face as being one big pimple. Boys and girls alike made fun of Robert for his stutter and for his acne, but it stung more when the girls made fun of him. He was fairly girl crazy and very frustrated. They didn't care for him. And he came to hate all the cruel, pretty girls he coveted, but could not have. Hello, future serial killing motive. Ding, 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 ding. Scholastically, Hanson was an average to uh, to below average student. Uh, I guess below average to average, better way to phrase that. It's, It's possible he would have gotten better grades if he just didn't have to work such long hours in the bakery. He suffered from that age old dilemma of the donut maker's son. You know, too many maple bars, not enough calculus. Too many chocolate old fashions, not enough social studies. Too many cinnamon sugar twists, long johns, glazed donut holes, strawberry frosted, jelly donuts, crullers, not enough. You get the idea. One of Robert's high school teachers noticed he always seemed tired in her afternoon typing class, often falling asleep. She figured it was because he had to get up too early to work in his father's bakery. This same woman would also many years later uh, express a lot of regret, a lot of guilt over the method she chose to try to motivate Robert to stay awake in her class. She said when he'd fall asleep, she would encourage his classmates to sing along with a pretty cruel little ditty she whipped up where she'd just sing, you know, just Robert, pimple face, how are you such a disgrace? Your face looks like tomato paste. Wake up, you lazy pile of human waste. So, you know, pretty not cool. Reflect on that song years later, she could see, uh, she said she could see how it, it could have come across as insensitive or hurtful to Robert. She also said that when he'd wake up and hear that song and start crying, she wishes she would have, you know, maybe not pointed at him and laughed and yelled things like, oh, looks like the cheese is melting on Robert's pizza face. 
And then she really regretted literally running around the class, fucking high-fiving everybody after that. No, she didn't do that. Uh, I'm pretty sure a teacher behaving that way would have been frowned upon in Pocahontas, but you know that some of his classmates probably did shit pretty similar to that. You know he was mocked savagely. Basically, Robert's childhood was pretty shitty. Uh, Some people have the inner strength to overcome that later in life. Some people choose to look back at high school and think, you know what, fuck those clowns, but not Robert. Uh, High school would haunt him for the rest of his life. He had no real friends in high school. He was described as a loner. He later said the school was hell and that all through high school, if I knew there was a possibility that I have to say something in class or make a comment, I would literally break out in sweats. And of course, getting excited made my stuttering worse. Hanson uh, went out for basketball all four years of high school, but failed to win a letter each and every year. Same thing with football, crushing it. Dude was crushing it. Outside of school, working in the bakery when Robert did have free time, he'd go out into the woods and daydream about rape and murder. Actually, not kidding. He did start to fantasize about raping and hurting, killing. All the girls who had made fun of him pretty early on in life started dividing women in his mind into good girls and bad girls. Bad girls who made fun of him should be punished. Bad girls who weren't sexually interested in him should be punished. He also hunted fish, became pretty good at archery. You know, great. Not a good combo for for some women he'd meet later on. I imagine he also started fantasizing about hunting those bad girls. Robert loved being out in the woods, out alone in nature. He was good with a gun. He was good with a bow. He felt powerful. He wasn't riding the basketball or football bench. No one was making fun of his acne. No one was making fun of his stutter. I imagine him just killing a deer and then just yelling, ha ha, take that, you fucking stupid damn it. By the way, I only feel okay making fun of his stutter because he was such a piece of shit. Uh, getting bullied, no excuse for what he would later do. In May of 1957, Hanson graduated with 31 other students, about like my high school in Riggins, where I graduated with 23 kids. And his tiny high school's uh, yearbook got his name wrong. Senior year. Robert's name was misspelled Hanson with an O. How insulting is that? Under his misspelled name was the slogan, worry never made men great, so why should I worry? Years later, he didn't seem to worry too much about getting caught for taking women out in the woods and hunting them. Back to his misspelled name in that yearbook for a second. That's so sad to me. To me, that speaks volumes about how truly unpopular he was. Like he graduated with 31 other kids, a class of 32. So in their high school, about 120 kids, you know, total put in the yearbook, most of whom I'm guessing lived in town, most, if not all of their lives. You don't misspell the starting quarterback's name in a little school like that. You don't misspell the, the prom king or the captain, the cheerleaders. You don't misspell the name of any other kid who hangs out with those kids. Or, or, the, or the name of any kid you at least talk to in the halls, or at least know casually, which is 99.9% of the other kids. Like I went to a tiny high school and you know everybody. It's not big enough to break up into cliques. I feel like you only fuck up the name of some kid like that if, if that kid barely exists to you. I mean, maybe it was an honest mistake. I know that could have easily happened. I think more likely they, just, they gave that little of a shit about Robert or even worse, one final in, insult on his way out. Maybe I'm reading too much into this, but this this is what Robert seemed to feel, these kind of things. He felt like people just really hated him. Uh, Robert joined the Army Reserves in 1957 after graduation. He did his basic training in Fort Dix in New Jersey, where he became proficient as a marksman. He then went to Fort Knox, Kentucky, served for just one year before being discharged. Actually, some sources say he was discharged. Others say he completed his active duty after a year and then was on reserve duty status for several years after that. I'm guessing... Uh, in the army, Robert's drill sergeant may have mocked him as well, right? I mean, I don't know that to be true, but I've, I've heard that many a drill sergeant, especially back in the time when Robert was young, pretty fond of aggressively breaking men down through verbal abuse before hopefully building them back up. 
Look at your bed, Private <laughs> Hanson. Does that look clean to you, you pizza-faced fuck? Something like that. I imagine you heard something like that. Before leaving his brief active duty stint in the military, Robert had his first sexual encounter with a prostitute. And I'm going to say this was his first sexual encounter with a woman in general. And then he had many more encounters with prostitutes, encounters that rarely left him satisfied. He was frustrated with how quickly the encounters would be over. He would say it was just wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. He wanted more time with these women, time he would, you know, force on these women later. This poor, sick bastard, he just wanted them so badly to want him. In 1958, after leaving the army, Robert would return to Iowa and again work in his dad's bakery. Again, crushing it in Pocahontas. A few months later, he gets his own apartment in Pocahontas and according to someone who would be interviewed years later, he'd have high school boys over to his apartment and talk about guns, hunting, and who or what he didn't like in Pocahontas. So, you know, he's just becoming cooler and cooler. The cool guy, super cool guy who doesn't have friends in high school and then moves away and then comes right back and then hangs out with the new high schoolers. You know, I knew, I knew a couple of kids like that where I grew up. Always the cream of the crop, always the best. I always thought, good for them for not moving on with their lives. In 1959, Robert starts dating a woman who is mentioned in all kinds of biographies, but is not named in anything. It's not named in any of the articles about Robert online. Uh, I, I, I found the, the, the best two biographies I, I, that seem to be out there about this dirtbag, and, and she's not mentioned by name and knows. And one of the sources, she's referred to as a girl who graduated a year after he did, the daughter of the town chiropractor. That same source said that this chiropractor and his family had little contact with the community outside of his practice. Then, on December 7th, 1960, Robert burns down his old high school's school bus garage, clearly angry about high school, clearly harboring some grudges. As retribution for the abuse he once received, Robert takes a 16-year-old employee at his father's bakery, talks this kid into helping him set fire to the school bus garage. Not only do they successfully burn it to the ground, they also destroy three of the seven of the school's buses. Just take that, poka. Take, goddamn it. Very frustrated. Unfortunately for Robert, his accomplice turns himself in, rats Robert out. On March 29th, 1961, Robert Hansen charged with arson. His bail is set at $2,500. Three days later, his mom, Edna, goes to the courthouse, bails him out. That night, Robert marries the chiropractor's daughter in a ceremony at the Lutheran Church. The newlyweds, uh, leaving a week for Florida for their honeymoon, return to live in Robert's apartment while he awaits trial after that. Man, what a fun wedding that would be. <laughs> Getting married in front of your new in-laws who now know that their daughter is getting hitched to a vengeful, psychopathic arsonist. They must have been so thrilled. Uh, and, you know, stress and anxiety made Robert stutter worse. Those vows must have been something else to watch. Just, I, I promise to, to love you for, for, for forever. I, I promise not to set, to, to set any more for, 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 for God damn it. Sorry, everybody. No more for, 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 for fires. That's September. Hanson indicted for the arson charge. Considering the case against him, Hanson waives his right to a trial, pleads guilty. He would later say, I guess I burned down the bus barn because I hated the school with a divine passion. That's his words, divine passion. I would do whatever I could think of to get back at the monster school that did Bob Hanson a personal wrong. Dude, clearly can't move on from high school. In a way, yeah, Robert would never move on. On October 9th, 1961, Robert was sentenced to three years at the State Reformatory at Anamosa. 
now known as the Anamosa State Penitentiary in Iowa. Shortly afterward, his, his wife divorces him. In Anamosa, home of the National Motorcycle Museum, which by the way, looks pretty awesome. A psychiatrist diagnoses Hanson as having an infantile personality disorder based on Robert's description of fantasies of revenge and destruction. Hanson revealed to the psychiatrist he imagined doing vicious things to girls who'd rejected him or made fun of him. He talked about wanting to blow up the town water tower, talked about wanting to shoot out the light to the town police car. He was obsessed with getting even. He hated this town. In late 1962, another psychiatric assessment done on Hanson states that while he still had an infantile personality, his antisocial attitudes had diminished. This report, coupled with his record of good conduct, earned him early parole on May Day, 1963. The winner that Hanson, or before, excuse me, the winner before Hanson was released, his parents had closed their successful Pocahontas bakery and left town. The shame of everyone knowing that their son was the town arsonist was just too much for them to bear. They purchased a Stony Point resort on Leech Lake in Minnesota, 200 miles north of Minneapolis-St. Paul, moved up to northern Minnesota to get everything ready for the coming fishing season. The Hansons Resort was located in the Chippewa National Forest on a peninsula on the southwest side of the big 110,000-acre lake. When Robert was released from Anamosa, he took his parole in Minnesota, went to work at his parents' resort, spending the first weeks helping paint the boats and cabins and putting out the docks. When the season began, he, he guided fishing parties. He loved it. I'm sure shit was a little bit tense between him and his parents, but, you know, he liked his new wilderness environment. In the summer of 63, he also met the woman who had become his second wife, Gloria Deacon. She was one of the girls his folks had hired to clean the cabins. She was also from Pocahontas. Her parents ran a motel there. Gloria went back to Iowa University that fall while Robert completed three-and-a-half-week short course at the Wilton School of Cake Decorating in Chicago. Soon after that, Robert got a job at a bakery in Minot, North Dakota, through a friend of his parents. He and Gloria got married a month later. Then Robert got into some kind of trouble at his new job and came back to work at his parents' resort. The troubled son returns. Based on what kind of trouble he'll get in soon, I'm going to guess that Robert got fired in Minot for stealing something. Robert loved stealing stuff almost as much as he loved raping, killing, and setting things on fire. Shortly after returning home, Hanson got another job at a big bakery chain called Cox Bakeries, and the couple moved to Moorhead, Minnesota. This chain doesn't seem to exist anymore, but there is a Cox Bakery and Donuts in El Paso. If anyone working at this bakery listens to Time Suck, please talk to the owners into hiring me to write some radio jingles for a new ad campaign. I got so many ideas that I feel pretty good about. Cox Bakeries running a new contest this summer. Whoever can eat the most donuts in 10 minutes gets free donuts for life. So come on down to Comb Street. Find out how much Cox you can fit inside yourself. Cox, put them in your mouth. Nothing's going to kickstart your day like some cocks. Bakery and donuts. Wake up and smell the cocks. Bakery and donuts. Set down that bag of dicks, buddy. And instead, why don't you eat a bag of cocks? Bakery and donuts. Just think about it. That's just, that's just me spitballing. I'll put even more work into it if you hire me. Anyway, Robert, supposed to rotate among the bakery chain's 32 shops scattered throughout the Midwest, filling in for regular managers while they take their vacations. His first assignment is a two-week stint in Rapid City, South Dakota. When he gets back from slanging so many donuts and maple bars in Rapid City, when he got done stuffing Rapid City to the gills with muffins and pumpkin bread, he and Gloria decided they didn't like Robert having to travel so much for work, and they moved to Minneapolis to get a new job. Robert was done with cocks. He swore off cocks for the rest of his life after that. He didn't want any more cocks in his life. Robert and Gloria lived in the Collins Trailer Park on East 78th Street in the suburb of Bloomington, Gloria attended the University of Minnesota now. Robert worked at the Murr Bakery in Uptown Minneapolis. 
on West 50th. Myrrh Bakery, since 1953, tasting better than a bag of cocks. Uh, Myrrh, I'll work for you as well. Robert was hired by Myrrh to be a foreman and cake decorator. His new boss found him to be an excellent worker. The people of Myrrh also discovered he had quite a temper. Apparently, he liked to go off on people working under his supervision all the time. Very, uh, he would snap pretty easily, but always polite to his boss. So uh, they kept him. Two years later, on February 22nd, 1965, Robert gets into some criminal trouble again. A Bloomington policeman arrested Hansen for stealing some fish line and lures worth 11 bucks from a sporting goods store. He had the money. He just didn't want to pay for it. As it turned out, Robert had gotten really into shoplifting and had been stealing stuff for months. Robert's interest in shoplifting is best summed up by that Jane's Addiction song, Been Caught Stealing. I enjoy stealing. It's just as simple as that. Well, it's just a simple fact. When I want something and I don't want to pay for it, then I walk right through the door. Yeah, I walk right through the door. Just like the song. Dude just enjoyed walking out the door and stealing some shit. He liked it. Truly, truly. This, for the rest of his life when he's not incarcerated, just loved taking stuff. Gloria Hansen persuaded the couple's Lutheran pastor to vouch for Bob. And these first shoplifting charges were dropped, but Robert was not done stealing. Not even close. A couple months later, Robert's bakery boss comes into the shop early one day, finds Robert is in the office. He'd broken into the office by using a knife on the lock. Hanson is rifling through a desk drawer that has cash for customer change. This guy would later say that he was obviously furious. He said, I called the county attorney about pressing charges. But then Bob came to me and he said he'd been offered more money to work at the Northside Bakery. That simplified things. I told him just to go ahead and take the job. Oh, that's hilarious to me. You're, gonna, you're going to jail, asshole. Wait, wait, what? You got a, you got a job offer? Uh, some other place? Oh, you know what? Good for you. Why don't you take it, man? Best of luck. Get on, go on. Get out of here. <laughs> I'm not that mad. I, sh- I, sh- I just don't want you here anymore. So maybe he just been wanting to get rid of Robert and that was just good enough. Maybe, maybe he enjoyed thinking about, you know, Robert stealing from one of his competitors. That May, Robert was arrest- arrested again for theft. Took a, took a softball from Montgomery Ward. Arrested for that. So random to me. At his new job, he'd actually started bragging to other employees about how he could go into a store, try in a suit, then walk out of the store wearing it. In the spring of 1967, Gloria graduated from the University of Minnesota. She and Robert decided to leave Minnesota. They both loved the great outdoors. She and Robert chose to to move to the state with the greatest amount of wilderness and outdoors in the U.S. by far. They decided to move to Alaska. In June, the couple stuffs their belongings in a tent into a new Pontiac, heads for the Pacific Northwest, hitting all kinds of campsites and national parks along the way. They stay in the Grand Teton National Park to take mountain climbing lessons. They spend time enjoying the beauty of Glacier National Park. Glacier is beautiful, by the way. Holy shit, is it ever beautiful. Uh, Lindsay and I and the kids camped there two summers ago. Incredible. Highly recommend. Love everything about it. Three out of five stars. And uh, then they drove up through Canada to Alaska, arriving in Anchorage in mid-August. Anchorage, the city my sister Donna was born in. city I went to kindergarten through second grade in. Alaska would provide Robert with plenty of room to hunt. He'd end up hunting all kinds of animals in Alaska, including, of course, sadly, human beings. Alaska's 591,000 square mile area equals one third of the lower 48s or 48 states combined total land area. It's huge, as I said at the beginning, and, and so full of land no one else is living on. Wilderness where you can walk for days and days and never run into another person. Plenty of room to take somebody out into the wilderness, let them scream all they want. No one will hear, hear them and, uh, and kill them. No one else around for, for miles and miles and miles. Alaska's 1967 population was only 278,000 total people. 
To understand Alaska's population in proportion to its size, imagine Manhattan only having 11 people total on it. And most of Alaska's people live in or around Anchorage. The rest of the state, so rural, Anchorage is located in South Central Alaska at the northeastern end of the Cook Inlet Basin, a 37,000 square mile area shaped in a horseshoe by a quintet of mountain ranges. On the west, the Aleutian Range extends 160 miles to the north to overlap with the Alaska Range as it curves across the top of the basin. On the east, the Talkeetna Mountains go from the Alaska Range to the Matanuska River Valley. Across the valley, the Chugach Range stretches to the southwest along the Gulf Coast of Alaska to the Kenai Mountains, which buttress the basin from the rough Gulf waters on the south and the tides of Cook Inlet on the north. Alaska is a relatively new city, came into existence in 1915 when President Woodrow Wilson proposed a rail route to connect the interior coal fields of the Matanuska and Ninana Valleys to the ice-free port of Seward, Alaska. Anchorage was a staging area for the project, and overnight, a tent city of 2,000 railroad, railroad workers and a handful of merchants sprouted up. And then on July 10th, 1915, there was an auction of 655 town site lots and land com- the land comprising today's 4th Avenue area of Anchorage. City planners tried to keep the new community from becoming a den of sin, stipulating that the lots are not to be used for the sale of liquor, gambling, or immoral purposes. Violation means forfeiture of property. However, Anchorage would still become a rough frontier town full of all kinds of gambling, liquor, and prostitution. Ironically, its seediest area would be that area that the founders of the town tried to keep from being seedy. By 1940, Anchorage had doubled in its original population, and with the arrival of Fort Richardson and Elmendorf Air Force Base, it extended sixfold or expanded sixfold to 30,000 people by 1950, making it the largest city in the territory. Think about that. A city of 30,000 being the largest city in all of Alaska. Still a territory also. Alaska did not become a state until 1959. In 1964, South Central Alaska hit by the greatest recorded earthquake ever to strike the North American continent. Anchorage shook for five terrifying minutes as the quake reached 9.2. That's a big one on the Richter scale. Uh, my dad lived in Alaska at that time on Kodiak Island where my, with my grandpa Bill, uh, where he was a Pentecostal minister, and he remembers the quake well. I actually have a memory of feeling a much smaller earthquake in Alaska when I was around five. I remember the floor shaking in our apartment, some of my mom's knickknacks rattling on a shelf. I remember my mom getting scared, which of course made me scared. My grandpa Bill would later live in Cordova, Alaska, and I spent a week with him and my grandma Carol there when I was a kid, and he showed me a stretch of old highway that had been folded up and busted in that 64 quake. It was crazy just seeing asphalt turn into what looked like part of a roller coaster. Anchorage survived this huge quake. Alaskans are tough-ass people. And by 1967, Anchorage's 108,000 people made uh, up 39% of the state's population. And in the next 15 years, its number of city residents would double. The Hansons had no trouble finding employment in this booming Anchorage job market, hungry for people with a trade or a degree. Robert went to work as a baker and a cake decorator for the Safeway Bakery at 9th and Gamble. And Gloria got a job teaching on Government Hill. Life was good for the Hansons in Alaska. They rented an apartment by Safeway. They soon moved to a better one on Dawson Street. After only a year of renting, the young couple was able to buy a duplex on 6th Avenue in South Mountain View, where they lived in one half of the duplex, rented out the other. Mrs. Hansen became active in the Lutheran Central Church. She and Robert went hiking, camping, climbing, and fishing together. Life was way better for Robert in Alaska than it had been in Pocahontas. He and Gloria made uh, custom t-shirts 
they would wear that said, we love Alaska. Of course, they didn't do that. But he did love Alaska. Robert threw himself into archery and bow hunting, joined the Black Sheep Bowmen, the Alaska Archery Association. In 1969, Hansen got into the Pope and Young record book twice, shooting a fourth-ranked mountain goat on the Kenai Peninsula, bringing down a 33rd-ranked barren ground caribou. The Pope and Young Club, by the way, is an organization dedicated to bow hunting, which continues today and includes its own world record book for North American game. In 1970, Robert bagged the third largest doll sheep ever taken down by a bow. And the heads of all these animals would line the walls of his den. And I feel like later, if he would have been able to get away with it, he would have also added the heads of various women alongside them. Dude loved his trophies, visual reminders of lives he'd taken. In 1971, Robert and Gloria prepare for their arrival of their first child. They sold their duplex at a substantial profit, moved a few blocks north to a larger house on Thomas Circle. And Robert took a job at another bakery. And then the Hansons had a baby girl. And this girl's name does not seem to exist on the internet. I get the feeling she doesn't want to be found. Cannot blame her. Even on genealogy websites, on the, on the death database, find a grave, Robert's children's names are not listed. Neither is his wife, Gloria's name. I'm guessing after he was arrested, Gloria refused interviews, changed maybe her name, probably changed the name of her kids, and I can't blame her. After the birth of his first child, the Hansons began to go their separate ways, no longer going on wilderness outings together. As a couple, they continue to participate in church and social functions, but their lives do become more and more separate outside of that. And this separation will give Robert more and more time to fulfill the darkest of his urges. Also in 1971, Robert brought down the biggest doll sheep ever taken down by a bow. Hanson signed the Pope and Young Fair Chase Affidavit, wherein he swore that no firearm was used. Hansen also bagged the second-ranked barren ground caribou that year. Dude loved to hunt, and he was very good at it. But he would never enter his name into the Pope and Young record book ever again. He kept hunting, but by the time of the winter of 1972, he, he had changed, or 71, 72, he changed his prey to women. In the early 70s, Anchorage had an extremely rough tenderloin district full of all kinds of vice, largely run by Seattle Mafia boss Frank uh, Calacurio. It was centered on 4th Avenue. Again, that's where the city began where those lots have been sold back in 1915 to be used for anything but this. Now that's what they're, you know, being used for. Young women are flooding into the area in the hopes of making some big money dancing in full nude strip clubs that also operated as brothels. These clubs had names like Wild Cherry, Arctic Fox, Booby Trap, uh, Tits and Tots. Uh, Tits and Tots was Alaska's first strip club and preschool combo where the kids could hang out, color, drink grape juice, eat grilled cheese sandwiches. Their moms could dance naked next door and, you know, give lonely guys boners. And of course, there was no place called Tits and Tots. That was just an excuse to throw one of my old stand-up jokes into the, the, time, the time stack. One real place was the Great Alaskan Bush Company. Maybe the best name for a strip club ever. I, I imagine there was so much bush in the 70s. This place is actually still in operation, although in a different location, and I'm guessing with substantially less bush. I may or may not have spent too much time on their website verifying that fact. Be gone, Lucifina. One of the girls currently working uh, at this place as an entertainer goes by the stage name of Paisley. Clearly a nod to Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley. Clearly catering to the micropene demographic. Anyway, as the population and disposable income skyrockets in Anchorage during Alaska's big oil boom, the bigger strip clubs are skimming tens of thousands of dollars each month or more sometimes in cash. This is why the mob got involved there. A lot of cash money. 1974, construction on the Trans-Alaska Pipeline would bring a lot of money to this district. Uh, this pipeline would carry oil roughly 800 miles from the Prudhoe Bay at the 
top of the, uh, you know, the northern tip of Alaska down to Valdez, east of Anchorage, there was an oil boom. And with an oil boom comes a lot of blue collar jobs, paying a lot of money. Young dudes making some sweet oil money, looking to blow some cash on coke, alcohol, strippers, and prostitutes in the wild party scene of the Tenderloin District of Anchorage. And so lots of prostitutes flow in to meet this demand. Some of these prostitutes would become Hansen's victims. And the fact that they often weren't from this area made it that much harder for investigators to solve the cases. When girls went missing, law enforcement had no idea if they just returned to wherever they'd lived before Alaska or if something terrible had happened to them. Also, as one might imagine, uh, the seedy underbelly of Anchorage was also violent. Police were kept busy with plenty of beatings, armed robberies, firebombs, more than a couple murders. Between 1979 and 1983, police responded to 207 disturbances at just the Booby Trap Club alone. And another, another pretty good name for a strip club, by the way, Booby Trap. In this chaotic world, Robert Hansen found his new prey. Prey he figured the police wouldn't spend a lot of time looking for if they went missing, and sadly, he was right. In Anchorage's red light district, Robert soon realized he could easily find women who, for an offer of $300 cash, would go just about anywhere with him. But first, more legal trouble. In November of 1971, Hansen gets arrested for an incident in, Sp- in the Spinard neighborhood of Anchorage. On November 15th, 18-year-old Susie Heppard was driving home to relax after work on Monday on a Monday afternoon. On Northern Lights Boulevard, she stopped at a red light and in a casual just kind of pan of her surroundings, her eyes met the, the eyes of a man in the car next to hers. She just gave a little reflex courtesy smile. The light changes. She drives home to an apartment she shared with two roommates in Spinard. And then she thought no more about it. Just some random dude she happened to smile at for like a second. A random dude named Robert Hansen. Robert, however, thought a lot about it. He followed her to the apartment. After she got home, started taking a shower, there was a knock at the door. She answers it. There stands 32-year-old Robert. Robert pretends he was just trying to find somebody else in the apartment complex. Just, oh, uh, can I see your phone book for a second? It's on the table by the door. Susie lets him look. After looking, he's like, huh, ah, damn, must be unlisted. Uh, then he tries to start up a conversation. Tells the young woman he was new, new in Anchorage, didn't know any people, which would she like to go out with him on a date? No, thanks, Susie says. I'm engaged. And Hansen leaves, his casual approach didn't work, and he's pissed. She had rejected him, just like all those girls rejected him in high school. He's going to show her now. He decides to try a more aggressive approach next week. He decides he's going to have to make her, going to have to make her, going to have to make, damn it. Following Monday, Susie leaves her apartment at 5.15 a.m. to drive some friends to work. She drops him off. Drives back home where Robert is waiting for her in the darkness like the fucking weird creep he is. As her car's headlight beams sweep across the yard, when she turns into the driveway, Susie sees a man in an orange cap hurry behind a neighboring building. She parks her car in the carport, gets out. Suddenly, the man in the orange cap steps in front of her, points a gun at her face. It's, of course, Robert. He snarls, shut up, sweetheart, or I'll blow your brains out. She instinctively screams, cocks the revolver, says, scream again, and I'll blow your (laughs) head off. And that's when another Susie, Susan Scott, who's in a back bedroom ironing a blouse, hears her scream outside. She hurries into the living room, looks out a window, sees a man standing with her roommate in the lighted area at the base of the stairway. stairway. Uh, She can see this guy's holding a gun. She opens the door and yells, what's going on, Susie? Are you all right? When she doesn't get a reply, she closes the door, calls the police. Robert's nervous now. He walks away from Susie and then he just wanders off down the street. Moments later, the cops arrive. And then moments after that, they find him wandering around the neighborhood. Hansen's vehicle is located. A loaded 22 caliber pistol is found under the driver's seat. Another officer finds his, his orange 
cap in the snow. They find a 357 Magnum revolver nearby. The cap revolver and some of his hair are sent to a crime lab for testing. Susie positively identifies Robert. Then a grand jury charges Hansen with assault with a deadly weapon. His trial is set for January of 1972. While awaiting this trial, he is arrested again. This time, Hansen is accused of having picked up an 18-year-old prostitute named Barbara Fields outside a bar in downtown Anchorage, kidnapping her and then raping her at gunpoint. He's accused of tying Barbara up, then driving her 80 miles away to an empty field out on the Kenai Peninsula. He made her strip naked, fondled her for about 50 minutes like they were just on a date together, like a consensual date, as, as opposed to her being held against her will. Then has her get dressed again, drives her to a motel called the Sunrise Inn, takes her to a room, ties her to a bed and rapes her. Then he drives her back to Anchorage, told her he would kill her baby, told her he would kill her parents if she ever ratted him out to police, and then just lets her go. And then she goes to the police. And unfortunately, the district attorney ends up having to drop her case when Barbara becomes too scared to testify and fails to appear in court. Superior Court Judge James Fitzgerald then sentences Hansen to five years for drawing the gun upon the first woman, basing this punishment on a psychiatric evaluation that revealed that Hansen was still obsessed with revenge. He was obsessed with revenge. Revenge on any woman who reminded him of those girls back in Pocahontas. He wanted to hurt him. He wanted to kill him. Judge Fitzgerald could see that Hansen was dangerous. However, Hansen was still able to get out of jail quickly, despite objections from the prosecutor due to another more forgiving psychic or psychiatric evaluation. He immediately applies for parole, gets out quickly, only staying in jail for three months. Only was in jail from March to June. In June 1972, Hansen assigned to a halfway house upon his release. He receives psychiatric treatment until November. In December, he's let out of the halfway house on a work furlough program. In the confession he gave to investigators later, he stated that the very first night he was free, the very first night, he goes down to 4th Avenue, starts cruising the area, watching prostitutes, fantasizing about how he's going to capture one of them again. Also that December, a petite, blonde, 18-year-old Anchorage resident, Celia Beth Van Zanten, a freshman at Anchorage Community College, goes missing on December 22nd. Three days later, on Christmas afternoon, her partially nude, frozen body is found in a ravine 20 miles south of Anchorage. Her hands have been tied behind her back. Robert would never confess to her murder, but is strongly suspected of having killed her. A map would be found after his eventual serial killing arrest with with little uh, asterisks, little X's on the map. Many of those X's would be revealed to be the locations of known Hanson murder victims. And there was an X where where Celia's body was found. And while all this is going on, Robert is still happily married. His wife, Gloria, stays with him despite the recent very strong kidnapping and rape allegation, despite the recent conviction for assault, which was obviously a rape attempt. Do not do that, anyone. If your man gets arrested for attempted rape, and then because a witness doesn't show up in in another incident of obvious rape, pick up your shit, start a new life. Do that right away. Wishing somebody will change and become better is not going to make them better. When people go that dark, no part of me believes they'll ever really be good again. I feel like they've gone past the point of no return. You know, it'd be hard to start over, but at least you won't be living with a rapist who will almost certainly rape again and again and again. You won't be giving a cover story to a rapist that they can use in court to get reduced charges, reduced sentencing. You know, just, uh, oh, he's just a good family guy. Ah, he won't do it again. I mean, that kind of stuff happens all the time. Despite newspaper coverage of the recent charges against Robert, the conviction and rape accusation, there was a preliminary trial for the rape allegation. Robert doesn't seem to suffer much uh, of a status drop in the Anchorage community either. Coworker Irma Knight would later recall, we took it with a grain of salt because Bob was a hard worker, the best cake decorator. And he had that little girl. 
So we figured he had a good marriage. What? You took his conviction and other near conviction with a grain of salt? Are you fucking stupid? Like, it's so strange how we meat sacks can rationalize things. Sure. I read about the kidnapping and rape charges. Yeah, I mean, I knew he was arrested for pulling a gun on that other 18-year-old girl. But I also knew the guy decorated cakes like nobody's business. So good, really tasty. How can you decorate cakes so so well and be married and have a kid and go around kidnapping and raping? You, you can't. You just you just can't do it. I would love to see that type of logic used to defend somebody in court. Your Honor, we all know that my client has been charged with multiple rapes and murders, and that there are witnesses and a ton of forensic evidence and even a signed confession. He even looks pretty rapey with his comb over and his thin mustache and his T-shirt that says, spread those legs or I'll kill you. But, Your Honor, please, check out this sweet cake. I mean, really look at it. Look at the detail. It's a Leaning Tower of Pisa in German chocolate form. Each section has a Boston cream filling layer inside. Taste it. Taste the frosting. It looks like Italian marble, but tastes like delicious German chocolate. Do you honestly think that a rapey serial killer could make a cake that delicious and beautiful? It is impossible, Your Honor. I mean, if this if this cake was a cake of a naked lady with her tits cut off, then yeah, throw him in a cell. If it tasted like a moldy old gym sock that someone with severe case athlete's foot wore, someone who, you know, uh, just liked to walk around barefoot on a floor of just nothing but dog shit and cum before eventually putting the sock back on, then yeah, send him to death row. But this cake is, is delicious art. So please, let my cake maker go. In the summer of 1973, Hanson in all likelihood kills again after his wife and daughter head back to Minnesota to spend the summer with his wife's parents. While Gloria is chilling in the land of 10,000 lakes, on July 7th, 1973, a 17-year-old girl named Megan Emmerich disappears from Anchorage. Hanson would never confess to her murder, but he is still considered the prime suspect in her murder. Then in late 1973, Hanson has an encounter with the Seward police or with the Seward police while still on parole for assault. They find a stolen boat motor and a stolen depth finder with the serial numbers filed off aboard the Christie M, a boat that Hanson owned. Hanson contended he bought the stolen goods through private sales, but lost the receipts. And then he passes a lie detector test and he's not charged. Consequently, with no record of bad behavior or misconduct during his general furlough, he's paroled in December of 1973. Then in 1974, Hanson in all likelihood rapes a 16-year-old girl in Anchorage, but that crime is not reported. 35 years old, still getting back at those Pocahontas high school girls. 10 years after this assault, this victim would tell her story to Sheila Toomey, who was writing a series of articles about the hidden victims of violent crimes in the Anchorage Daily News. In the June 12th, 1994 story, this victim was given the pseudonym Leela. Leela said that on a brisk September night, she was walking home to Gamble Street after a party. As she crossed the street, Hanson, waiting in a parked car, rolled down his window, asked if she wanted a ride. Though she didn't usually hitchhike, this man was soft-spoken and polite. He didn't seem threatening. She accepted. Leela told Toomey, he sort of looked like the perfect dork. I thought he was a dud. At her house, Robert Hansen wouldn't let her out of the car, pulled a gun when she tried to resist. As they drove away, Leela remembered Hansen getting very talkative, asking about her boyfriend. Did she sleep with him? How many boys did she slept with? She said, I had the feeling he'd done this kind of thing before. Hanson made her take off everything except her blouse, and then he forced her to perform oral sex on him while he held the gun to her head. Next, and this is so strange, he made her flash a passing motorist. This guy just loves flirting with getting caught, loves being reckless. Something Hanson did this to further humiliate her. He had been humiliated, so now he's making this pretty girl 
humiliate herself. After, after several hours of sexually assaulting young Leela, Hansen drove around trying to find, as he told her, another girl to make us do things. Creepy. Uh, he didn't find anyone that he drove around. Uh, he didn't find anyone. Then he drove around aimlessly for a long while, Leela said. I thought he was trying to decide what to do with me next. And then he did something else super odd and very unexpected. Robert handed Leela the gun and said, okay, now you can do whatever you want with me. Or you can order me to drive you to the police station. What the fuck? I mean, did he want her to kill him? I had the gun in my hand, Lita told Toomey. I could have shot that bastard, but I thought it was a trap that the gun wasn't even loaded. And I think that's uh, probably true. That, that's what I would have thought, that he's, that he's tricking her, you know? Or is this further humiliation? Did he want her to find out that the gun wasn't loaded? Did he want her to know that he'd just done what he'd done to her, even though she could have ran away when he at first pointed that unloaded gun at her? And then Hanson let her go, threatening, if you go to the police, I'll hunt you down, the terrified Leela responded, just let me live. I'll never tell. And then she didn't tell for many, many years. Didn't tell until he was arrested. On July 5th, 1975, 23-year-old Mary Kay, Mary Kay Thill, disappears from Seward, Anchorage, or Seward, Alaska. Excuse me. Seward is 126 miles south of Anchorage, another suspected Hanson victim. Thill's husband was away from home when she disappeared, working at Prudo in the new oil field on the North Slope. Finding out his wife was missing, he returned home, put out a $1,000 reward for any information as to Mary's whereabouts or disappearance. It went unclaimed. Hansen later admitted he was in Seward the day Thill disappeared, but denied involvement in her case. Nevertheless, the police do believe she was one of his victims. Also in 1975, another prostitute complained about Hansen to a rape crisis center, and then the center reported the assault to the police. But Hansen was lucky again because this victim also refused to cooperate with law enforcement. She didn't want to testify. She was a school teacher who had traveled to Alaska to work at a strip club to make extra cash that summer, and she didn't want the publicity of a rape trial. She claimed Hansen drove her to the foothills of the Chugach State Park. <laughs> Chugach State Park. These fucking Alaska words. Raped her at gunpoint and then let her go. Hansen wasn't charged, even though the officers at the time were convinced he was guilty. They just didn't have enough of a case. Also in 1975, as a teamster, Robert Hansen took a second job as a laborer on the loading dock at Alaska Cold Storage. And the Hansons had another baby, this time a son, whose name also appears to have been hidden. And they were also saving to buy a larger home. Dude is crushing it, building his family, making tons of money, killing and raping whoever he wants to kill and rape. Despite doing well financially, Robert is still stealing a lot of things as well. Robert's kleptomania will get him uh, back in court here real soon. In July 76, Robert and Gloria put a $37,000 down payment on an $88,000 house on Old Harbor Avenue in Muldoon. Uh, Hanson's parents come to visit in September, see their son's new home, how proud they must have been of their rapey, murdering little fire starter. And then Robert went back to prison for, of all things, stealing a chainsaw from Fred Myers. Plot twist. Did not see that coming. Can't get a rape charge to stick on this sick fuck, but he also ends up in prison for five years for stealing a chainsaw. Robert would later say when he shoplifted, he'd come close to ejaculating in his pants said it gave him the same sexual satisfaction that he got with the prostitute. Just, oh, shit. Look at that sexy-ass chainsaw. I didn't even have to pay for it. Makes me so Makes me so Damn it! Before going over the details of his chainsaw theft conviction, one final sponsor. Time Stick is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. Sometimes we need a break from the constant news cycle. Sometimes we need a break from the constant darkness I talk about. 
Uh, the Great Courses Plus is the perfect escape for both of those breaks. With this new uh, streaming device, you can pick up a new hobby, build knowledge on virtually any topic like forensic history or the science of extreme weather. There are even courses on how to win a debate or speak a new language, all presented by award-winning experts who are passionate about what they teach. And with the Great Courses Plus app, you can watch or listen at any time, anywhere. I recommend checking out their brand new course, Play Ball. The rise of baseball is America's pastime, created in partnership with the National Baseball Hall of Fame Museum. Summer, the perfect time to learn a bit more about America's most American sport. Check out lecture number eight, Sacred Ground, America's Early Ballparks. Make a summer plan around one or 10 of these ballparks. I finally saw a game at Fenway in Boston early this year with Lindsay and comedian John Huck. So much fun to sit in a park where so many legendary games have been played, where so many legendary athletes have taken the field. You can feel the history there. Empower yourself with knowledge. Sign up for the Great Courses Plus today. Time suckers get an all-access trial for free when you sign up through my special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck. Link in the episode description. Now back to that chainsaw arrest. On November 3rd, the day after the election of uh, Jimmy Carter, for president, when Jimmy Carter uh, won his race for the presidency against incumbent Gerald Ford, Hanson walked into the Fred Meyer store at the intersection of Northern Lights Boulevard and the new Seward Highway. I'm not positive. I'm pretty sure this is a uh, Fred Meyer's. I, I, I lived not too far from when I was a little kid. Security guard Jesse G. Smith watched the shopper act suspiciously in the sporting goods section at the chainsaw display. The man's pockmarked face turned one way, then the other as he examined a saw. It appeared to Smith that the fellow was looking to see if anybody was watching him. Smith watched Hanson take a chainsaw through a closed checkout lane and out of the store. He pursued, apprehended Robert Hanson 80 yards from the entrance. And then a week later, Hanson is indicted for felony larceny in a building. The district attorney could have prosecuted the offense as a shoplifting misdemeanor, but chose a felony charge because of Hanson's previous convictions. At his arraignment, Hanson pled not guilty, released on $500 bail. Hanson took immediate steps to prepare for a defense uh, went to see psychologist Dr. Alan Parker, the same man who'd examined him when he'd been charged with assault back in 72. Parker's evaluation back in 72 would help him get out of jail early. Parker's findings now would not help his case. After administer, uh, administering a series of tests, Parker wrote the following evaluation. Emotional and personality testing indicates a markedly disturbed man who was somewhat antisocial, paranoid by nature, and with a relatively weak ego. There are indications of severe heterosexual conflict, both with a desire for women and a fear that he will not be able to relate to them. He is capable of acting out impulses, and he's aware of many of the impulses within his personality. He has a great deal of free-floating anxiety. Since Parker had also done the analysis of Hansen back in 72, he was able to now conduct a longitudinal analysis of Hansen, and he wrote, the retesting indicates the presence of disintegration of personality to a highly potential psychotic level or high schizophrenic scale, high manic scale, and high antisocial scale. There's some narcissism and magical thinking involved in this also. Disintegration of personality to a highly potential psychotic level. I'm not a psychiatrist, but that sounds really, really bad. Like, I don't think you can feel good about somebody getting that diagnosis. Just good news, everybody. Dad's going to be fine. Turns out he's not clinically depressed. He is just, uh, he, he's okay. He, he's totally psychologically healthy other than suffering from a disintegration of his personality to a highly potential psychotic level. 
On January 19, 1977, before Judge James K. Singleton, Hansen pleads guilty to the theft of the chainsaw. And then the judge chooses to wait to sentence Hansen, deciding to wait on the results of additional psychological tests. On March 22, 1977, another psychiatrist, Dr. McMahon, testifies he diagnosed Hansen as suffering from a bipolar affective disorder, a variant of a manic depressive disorder. The doctor distinguished Robert's affliction from the classic manic depressive pattern by the absence of any serious depressive episodes. Hansen's impulses, he said, were poorly controlled during his mood and energy upswings, in which he would develop an abnormal preoccupation with a single activity. Dr. McNamon said his kleptomania was a manifestation of his monomania, and his determination as a trophy hunter was a socially acceptable example of his monomanic behavior, where he'd be looking to do things no one else had done in order to consume his energy. McMahon also said that after his third session with Hansen, it's actually McMahon, I keep floating over it. It's McMahon also said that after his third session with Hansen, it was evident to him that Robert's antisocial urges were escalating, so he prescribed Thorazine to put an immediate check on those impulses. McMahon described Thorazine as a tranquilizer, and then the doctor switched Robert to lithium, stating it allowed him to function normally while learning how to control his antisocial behavior. If only that would have been true. Judge Singleton sentenced Hansen to five years in prison, but then just two days after sentencing, Hansen's attorney, he files a notice of appeal and his appeal, his appeal would be successful. On August 11th, 1978, the Supreme Court of Alaska, deciding to be lenient with Robert, ruled, the record before us reveals a man suffering from a clearly diagnosed mental illness that until recently offered little hope of recovery. Hansen's psychiatrist prescribed a course of drug treatment and therapy and reported to the sentencing court that Hansen had been cooperative and had a positive attitude toward the treatment. The court expressed optimism about the treatment Dr. McMahon was giving his patient and considering Hansen's stable home and work environment, their decision concluded that he be put on probation for the remainder of his five-year sentence and released from confinement immediately. And then just a few weeks after his release from prison, Robert Hansen murdered a woman at Summit Lake on the Kenai Peninsula. She was the first of at least 17 women he would kill between the fall of 78 and his arrest in 1983. Just, God, damn it! Robert had been initially sentenced to five years. He served only one. Also in 1978, Hansen applied for a pilot's license. On his application, he said he was taking lithium, a drug used to control bipolar disorder. He was denied a license because of this. So then he just took the test again. Just filed out, filed, filed a new application saying that he was not on lithium and he got his pilot's license. Sweet. There would only be one more legal complaint filed against Hansen from this time until he was eventually tracked down for multiple murders. The lone complaint was filed by yet another prostitute. She claimed that he held her hostage in his camper in Anchorage and that she had become convinced Hansen was going to rape and kill her. Nude and desperate, she broke a window in the trailer, got out, ran down the street, screaming as she went. The police got involved, but again, nothing came from the case. No physical evidence, and it came down to the word of a kind of somehow still respected businessman against that of a prostitute. We'll talk about that in a little bit more detail in a bit later in the timeline. In 1979, Robert Hansen finds another woman he wants to hurt. On October 14th, Christy Hayes was dancing at the Embers, a club in downtown Anchorage. She had just gotten laid off from tits and tots. She was luckily able to be rehired at Embers. Uh, she did a table dance for a fellow who was sitting by himself nursing a beer. He flashed a roll of money and with a stutter asked if they could meet later. I'll be off in 20 minutes, she told him. And he said, good, we'll meet outside. Look for a gold camper. Actually, he probably more likely said, look for a gold camper. Uh, later, after Hayes got into the back of the camper, 
uh, agreed to perform oral sex. Hansen pulled a gun on her. He forces her to strip. Then he bounds her or binds her with some snare wire. Fearing for her life, she begins to scream. Then when Hansen threats, don't shut her up, uh, she becomes more hysterical. Worried that someone would hear her screams, call the police. Hansen jumps out of the back of the camper into the cab to drive out to the wilderness. As he maneuvers the pickup through the streets of Anchorage to get to Glen Highway, Christy manages to squirm out of her bonds. Now, besides screaming, she's pounding on the camper walls. Hansen slams on the brakes, causing this poor woman to just, you know, fall forward and bash her head against the camper wall. Hansen then gets out, runs around to the back of the camper, but he can't get in because Christy has locked the camper door. I am loving Christy. She's a fighter. Christy then crawls to the sliding glass window beside, you know, between the camper and the cab, uh, locks the cab doors as well. Unfortunately, the driver's window is rolled partway down. Hansen sticks his arm through to pull up the lock. As, as fast as she can, Christy then cranks the window up, trapping Robert's arm. Really loving Christy. Fight, Christy, fight. Hail, Christy. In, uh, in rage, Hansen frees his arm by breaking the window. Then he yanks naked Christy out of the cab, throws her on the ground. So, uh, so shit's over, right? It's all, it's all done now. Wrong. Christy motherfucking Hayes, not done. After getting thrown naked to the ground, Hayes bounces back up to her feet, runs down the street, and despite being barefoot, despite getting her head bashed into the camper, uh, Hansen cannot catch her. He chases her, gives up after a couple blocks. He runs back to his camper, throws Christy's clothes on the ground, drives off, naked with a badly bruised face. Christy Hayes keeps running, screaming for help, eventually finds someone to help her and reports the assault to the police. Unfortunately, not able to identify her assailant from mugshots provided to her. But she gets away. She lives. No word on what Christy Hayes did with the rest of her life. I like to imagine that she stopped working at the strip club, walked away from prostitution, became a really successful martial arts instructor who specialized in teaching women how to defend themselves from attackers. Hey, Lucifina, let's believe that. We don't know it's true, but we also don't know it's not true. That same month in October of 79, Hansen picked up a 16-year-old girl outside the 4th Avenue movie theater, drove her out into the wilderness with the intention to rape her. But when his captive told him she was homeless and hadn't eaten for two days, he let her go without assaulting her. Guess he decided she wasn't like the girls who mocked him. Rare moment of humanity for Hansen. He actually took pity on somebody. Took pity on a 16-year-old girl he initially totally wanted to rape, but then ended up doing, I guess, I don't know, kind of a good thing. Later that fall, however, things turned out differently. Hansen cut a deal for sex with a young woman who would be uh, come to be known as or called the Eklutna Annie. Thought to have come from uh, Anchorage, from Kodiak Island, or come to Anchorage from Kodiak. She was wearing blue jeans, a sweater, brown leather jacket, high-heeled, red calf-length zip-up boots when she got into his gold camper. Hansen would later recall, I can't remember if she was a prostitute or a dancer. I picked her up downtown, told her I was going to take her to my home, I was heading up to Eklutna Road. There are several offshoot roads there. When it became obvious to the woman that Hansen wasn't driving her to his home, as he said he would, she told him she wanted to go back. And then he told her, we're just going a little further. Then she said, well, I'm not. And he pulled out a gun, pointed it at her and said, yes, you are. You will do exactly what I say and you won't get hurt. Continuing north on Glen Highway towards uh, Knick River, he turned into Eklutna Road, heading east towards Eklutna Lake. Fall rains combined with the summer runoff from Eklutna Glacier to make the lake streams and water levels very high, and many of the capillary roads and trails off of the main road contained water hazards. The one Robert turned onto did, and it quickly became a muddy swamp, and he got stuck. Robert had used his winch to try and get his vehicle free. While he was working on that, the woman he kidnapped started to try and sneak off into the woods. 
He yelled at her to stay put, and then she started running. He ran after her, and unfortunately, she wasn't as fast as Christy Hayes, and he caught her and grabbed her by her hair. Then she reached into her purse, pulled out a big black-handled buck knife, uh, buck knives, made right here in northern Idaho, by the way, about 10 miles from the Stuck Dungeon, uh, Post Falls. Only Own a few myself, very good knives. She swung her buck knife toward Hanson. Unfortunately, he was able to block it, block the blow, grab the hand that held the knife. Then he tripped her to the ground. She pleaded, don't kill me. And then while she was on the ground, face down, he plunges the knife into her back and he does kill her. And then he buries her in a quickly dug shallow grave. In June of 1980, Roxanne Eastland, a 24-year-old woman disappears from Anchorage, another Hanson victim. 23-year-old jo- uh, Joanne Messina goes missing from Stewart in July. Despite the Butcher Baker murder seven years earlier, beginning in 1973, when, Han- when Hanson's finally caught, he initially claims that Joanna Messina is his first victim. Side note about Joanna. Joanna was forever known to troopers as the Bear Lady. This was because when an investigator named John Lucking found her dead body at her hastily, or hastily you know, dug gravesite, he also found a very alive black bear. Walter J. Gilmore, author of Butcher Baker, The True Account of an Alaskan Serial Killer, and the director of the Trooper Academy in Sitka, wrote this of the incident. If you have ever been the object of a 200-pound black bear's attention, especially one intent on protecting its food source, you know that these beasts can be troublesome. While some people believe black bears are less dangerous than grizzlies, that's not true in Alaska, and even less true if they're feeding. As Lucking and his fellow investigators stared down the possibility of becoming another link in the food chain, they determined they had better scare the bear away. Scare tactics didn't work, and the bear became yet more menacing and protective of its food. They couldn't let the bear destroy their evidence, so the only logical course of action to take was to destroy the bear. But the black bear is a protected species in Alaska, so to kill one is tantamount almost a homicide. The wildlife in Alaska, moreover, have some pretty zealous protectors in the form of fish and wildlife police, also somewhat derisively known as fish cops. Although it was quickly evident, once the bear had been taken care of, that we had a homicide on our hands, the hue and cry that was raised focused almost exclusively on Lucking's destruction of this bear. Needless to say, that element of the case became an unwanted distraction. That's such an Alaskan detail. Homicide investigators having to deal with a bear on a, in a crime scene. Investigators having to deal uh, with people losing their shit over a bear being killed. People worried more about the bear than the woman. That also feels very Alaskan to me. It would be another two years before the troopers got a break in Joanna's homicide. In 1980, Hanson really began to ramp up his, uh, uh, his killing of Anchorage area prostitutes. His MO would be pretty consistent. After paying for their services, he would kidnap and rape them. Then he'd fly them out to a hunting cabin he'd bought in the Kinnick River Valley in his airplane. He would then release his victim into the woods to stalk and kill them with either a hunting knife or a 223 caliber Ruger Mini-14, a semiotic weapon similar in appearance to the military M-16. And while the body count continued to rise, it was hard for investigators to link all of these deaths to one killer. Prostitutes were disappearing from Anchorage all the time, not just because they were being killed. You know, as I said earlier, due, the, due, the, due to the transient nature of many of the people passing through Anchorage at this point in time, people popping in to make quick cash and then go back to wherever they lived, it wasn't easy to determine why someone would suddenly disappear. Also complicating the investigation, Hansen's rape and murder tactics generally left very little evidence. In one case in 1980, he allegedly shot the dog of a woman he'd murdered to make sure the dog wouldn't lead anyone to her shallow grave. In the fall of 80, more young women continued to disappear. 
On September 6, 1980, Lisa Fertrell, a 41-year-old white female, is last seen in Anchorage. Her death will later be traced to Hanson. In January of 1981, Robert opens a new bakery at 9th and Ingra in Anchorage. No reason to let Constant Killen get in the way of your bakery career. So fucking weird to me. Murder, rape, and donuts. Who knew they could go together? This has been such a strange episode to research. Keep finding myself both disgusted and also kind of hungry for donuts. I keep thinking weird shit like, I wonder if he did make a really good donut. Like, what a weird thing if you're a detective trying to solve this, you know, these murders, but also a detective who really, really loves Hanson's donuts. You know, what if he made by far the best donuts in all of Alaska? And then you catch him and you want to celebrate by grabbing a dozen fresh donuts from God damn it. Can he make a few more fresh donuts for prison? Robert got the money to open his new bakery by using a $13,000 cash settlement he received from a false insurance claim he'd made. Bob had claimed that his home was robbed, that thieves had stole his hunting trophies. Allegedly, after the missing hunting trophies were then found in his backyard, he said he just forgot to report the recovery. I want to try and do that. I want to go hide my truck somewhere, report it as being stolen, get the insurance money, and then just go pick up my truck again. Just drive it around. And then if I get caught, just say, I forgot. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh, dang it. That's right. I, I did get the insurance money to buy a new truck. I totally forgot about that. Hey, listen, can we just not worry about it? And then, hey, what about this? Next time somebody does steal his truck, then you don't even have to pay me. Even, even Steven, maybe. 1981, great year for Bob Hansen. Still happily married to Gloria, despite all of his past legal problems. Has two healthy kids, a new bakery. His business is prospering. He is considered a successful and respected member of the Anchorage community. Does anyone think that life is still fair? After hearing a story like this, can you possibly think that life has any fairness to it or that karma is real? Also in 81, two more Alaskan women disappear after Robert rapes and murders them. 22-year-old Andrea Altieri and 23-year-old Sherry Morrow. Sherry Morrow had been a dancer in Anchorage for three years, bounced from club to club. The Wild Cherry would be her last booking. Friends described the five-foot-six blonde as a pretty girl, quiet and shy. Her roommate saw her as a lonely, troubled 23-year-old who just wanted to meet the right guy and get married. I kept telling her there were only jerks coming into the clubs, her roommate said. Sherry was gullible, easily talked into anything. When Sherry was last seen leaving a friend's house around noon on November 17th, she was wearing jeans, baby blue ski jacket, pair of moon boots, arrowhead necklace, wire rim glasses that framed her blue eyes. She was going to Alice's 210 Cafe to meet some supposed photographer. She'd met who was going to pay her $300 for posing nude, some photographer who smelled like donuts. Shortly after meeting his intended victim at the cafe, Robert Hansen had blindfolded Mara with ace bandages. And while she knelt handcuffed and helpless on the floorboard of the front seat of his brown Subaru, he drove her to the Knick River. He eventually turned left on Glen Highway, following a winding road past cultivated potato fields, and then drove through some brush flats onto a sandbar along the riverbed. Hansen then let Sherry out of the car, but before he could get the handcuffs off her, she freaked out, started kicking, started screaming. Deciding to let her cool off, Hansen just walked away, took her 223 caliber Mini-14, uh, walked over, sat down by a tree, and just let her scream. Eventually, she ran towards Hansen. Hansen would later say he was just sitting there on his ass while she stood above him, kicking him, screaming. And then he said, I just pointed the Mini-14 up towards her and pulled the trigger. Just loves to toy with his victims. Hansen, with bruises on his legs from being kicked by Sherry, then took a fold-up spade that was part of his murder kit now, dug a shallow grave in the silt and the sand. After rolling Morrow's body into the hole, he removed her arrowhead necklace for a souvenir. 
loved taking little reminders, little trophies off his victims. Before he covered over the corpse, he bent down, picked up the spent 223 shell casing, tossed it into the grave. Then he walked back to his car, fondling her necklace. Two weeks later, he'd collect another trophy. On the morning of December 2nd, Andrea Altieri left her apartment to meet some older man she had just met for a shopping spree at Boniface Mall, some dude who smelled like donuts. Andrea, whose stage name was Enchantment, danced at the Bush Company. She hadn't felt suspicious about this older man, probably because, you know, uh, sometimes wealthy guys like this would just take her out and buy stuff. Uh, she put on jeans, red sweater, her gold chain with a fish charm on it, pearl ring, black leather jacket. She gave her roommate another dancer who went by the stage name of Magic, a see you later hug. Then Andrea took a cab to the Boniface Mall and disappeared. And then Robert did to her what he'd done to so many other girls by this point. Altieri ended up handcuffed and blindfolded. Hanson drove her to the Knick River area, turning onto a service road uh, off the Palmer Highway. He headed for an isolated spot by the Knick River Railroad Bridge, told her he'd raped a woman there the week before. And according to Hanson, everything had gone fine and I let her go. Side note, Robert did continue to let an untold number of victims go. He'd drive women to these remote places, raped them repeatedly. And then oftentimes, if he decided they were good girls, who had done what he told them, good girls who hadn't made fun of him or reminded him of those mean girls back in Iowa. He'd drive them to Anchorage, chatting them up in a friendly manner, like, like he hadn't just tied them up and raped them. And then he just let them go. Still in the car, Hanson fondled Altieri's breast for a while, again, like they were on some kind of consensual date because he's fucking crazy. Then he held a 22 Browning automatic pistol to her head, very undate-like, forced her to perform oral sex. That's definitely part of his big pattern. Gun to the head, forced oral sex, Soon, Andrea told him she had to go to the bathroom. They got out of the car. Robert laid his gun on the hood. Andrea walked off a ways to go to the bathroom. Robert did the same, unzipping his pants, started to urinate. Suddenly, Hanson heard a noise, pivoted to see Andrea running back, reaching for the pistol. She managed to get her hand on the butt of the revolver before Hanson got a hold of her. So close, she came so close. Robert grabbed the gun by the barrel, twisted it out of her hand, threw it back on the hood. Andrea started clawing at the acne-scarred face of Robert. He snatched the gun off the car and shot her. And then Hanson got a canvas duffel bag, folding shovel out of his car, filled the bag with gravel from the railroad bed. After lugging the bag out to the middle of the railroad trestle, he went back for Altieri's body. He tied the duffel to the dead woman's neck, pushed it and the body off the bridge and into the Knick River. And then he walked back to his car, fondling the pearl ring and fish charm necklace he'd taken from her body. Due to a booming bakery business, in January of 1982, Robert was able to buy himself a new plane, a Piper Super Cub. This would be the plane he would use for transporting the rest of his victims to his remote cabin on the Canuck River. His modus operandi would uh, now be picking up a woman along 4th Avenue, binding her hands at gunpoint, then flying her to the Canuck River where he would rape her and then decide he was going to fly her back and let her go or shoot her. The, uh, the Canuck River was his favorite killing location. It was still close to town, yet remote enough that he could hunt the women without anyone around to hear their screams for help. It was also a place with hundreds of sandbars, easy uh, for him to land his plane place to collect more trophies. His den was loaded with dead animal heads from those hunts, while his basement was accruing more and more trophies from his human hunts. Thank God he kept these trophies. These trophies would soon help investigators finally convict him. On May 26, 1982, another of Hansen's victims, Sue Luna, 23, last seen in Anchorage. Her case, similar to Sherry Morrow's. Sue met Hansen at the Good Times Strip Club. Like Sherry Morrow, Sue had agreed to meet Hansen at Alice's 210 Club. Although Luna was not offered money for nude photos, she was paid or told she was going to be paid $300 for an hour of sex. Sue's roommate eventually reported that Luna did not appear for work on the May 26th, that she had not been seen since. 
And then Sue's sister reported her missing. Finally, Anchorage City Police and then Alaskan State Police began to accept that many of the city's dancers weren't just heading back to wherever they normally lived. Somebody was killing them. The police realized that since 1986, dancers had disappeared completely from 4th Avenue clubs, dancers who had told no one they were leaving town, and Anchorage police quietly formed what they called a dancer task force to look into these disappearances. Then on September 12th, 1982, two off-duty police officers were hunting and found a shallow grave on the banks of the Knick River, a possible break in this new case. According to the book, Butcher Baker, the two men had little luck hunting, and as darkness began to fall, they decided to call it a day. These guys were cutting across a wide sandbar when they noticed a boot sticking out of the sand. Upon closer inspection, they saw sticking out of the sand, uh, it was actually a partially decomposed bone joint. Once their minds registered what they were looking at, both men uh, backed up from the scene. The last thing they wanted to do was disturb or contaminate so any evidence. After making note of the location, both men made their way out of the gorge, back to their camp, back to Anchorage. Sergeant Raleigh Port had been assigned to cover this investigation. A decorated Vietnam veteran, Port was considered one of the top investigators on the force. He was meticulous with every crime scene, known to spend hours going over the smallest areas. Before disturbing the body, Port had photographs taken from every angle, carefully examined the body itself for trace evidence before having it bagged. Afterwards, he pulled out a large screen and began sifting through the sand around the body. It took several hours for him to finish sifting, but in the end, it totally paid off. Lying on the screen before him was a single shell casing from a 22, or a two, two, two twenty-three, excuse me, caliber bullet. Port was familiar with this type of ammo, knew that it was used in high-powered rifles like M16s, Mini-14s, and AR-15s. Back in Anchorage, a preliminary autopsy revealed that the victim was female of undetermined age, had been dead for approximately six months. The cause of death was three gunshot wounds from the 223 caliber bullets. Ace bandages found mingled in with the remains, causing investigators to suspect that the victim had been blindfolded at the time of death. Took a little over two weeks to finally identify the body. She was, of course, Sherry Morrow, who had been reported missing a year earlier. Morrow had been shot in the back three times. The cartridges found near the body suggested she had been shot with a 20, or 223 Ruger Mini-14 hunting rifle. Strange element of the scene was that although the body was found fully clothed, there were no bullet holes in the clothing, leading investigators to believe that Sherry had been naked when shot, then redressed after death. Anchorage police also knew by now that Sherry Marlowe's murder was not an isolated incident. However, they didn't want to spread fear. They didn't want to tip off the killer by going public. So when discussing Marlowe's murder with the Anchorage Daily News, Investigators said they doubted it was related to the disappearance of at least three other women since 1980. They said, we don't believe we have a mass murderer out there, some psycho knocking off girls. Privately, they absolutely believe this. You know, they would be right. Alaska State Trooper Sergeant Lyle Hogsvin was now assigned to determine whether or not Sherry Morrow's murder was an isolated incident. One theory he pursued had Morrow's killer going back and forth between Fairbanks and Anchorage. Another investigator, Lieutenant Patrick Kasnick, later explained this theory, saying, At the time the dancers were disappearing in Anchorage, evidently to meet the same fate as Sherry Morrow, other women were being killed in Fairbanks. It was natural to take a look at those cases to see if there was any connection. The attempt to establish a link between the Fairbanks and Anchorage serial murders was both extensive and expensive, with our investigation relying on some of the most sophisticated computer systems available at the time. In the Fairbanks serial murders, the killer tied the victim's hands behind their backs, and we thought that was a key similarity to the Anchorage murders. A high-caliber weapon also used, and the Fairbanks killer blew the women's heads off in an attempt to destroy their faces. The bodies were left close to the road, moreover, with no effort to hide them. 
The FBI psychiatrist told us there was something ritualistic about the killings, but no apparent connection between the serial murders in Fairbanks and Anchorage. The mini-computer analysis also told us, no, there was no concrete link between the killings in the two cities. Even the autopsy results pointed in different directions. In 1982, this Fairbanks killer was identified. His name was Thomas Richard Bunday. Bunday was uh, suspected of killing six women, but never arrested. On the day his arrest warrant was issued, he drove his motorcycle into oncoming traffic and killed himself. No one from the other vehicle was seriously injured, and he saved the taxpayers a lot of money by doing that. So thanks, Richard. You did at least one kind of good thing. Uh, you know, kind of good thing before you die. I guess I should say thanks, Thomas. Thanks, Thomas, Richard Bunday. Weird similarity to Bundy. After realizing the Anchorage and Fairbanks murders were not connected, investigators reduced their area of invest- investigative focus to just Anchorage and the surrounding towns, but they still didn't have a decent suspect. Then on April 25th, 1983, Hansen struck again, killing Paula Golding, a 17-year-old girl. Then finally, Hansen would slip up. Investigators would realize they'd found their man. On June 13th, 1983, 19-year-old Anchorage prostitute Cindy Paulson was on an Anchorage street corner when she was approached by Hansen. When she agreed on a price with him, he asked for oral sex. She got into his truck. While she was going down on him, she looked up and saw the barrel of a 357 Magnum looking back down on her. And then Robert produced a pair of handcuffs from underneath his seat and snapped them onto Cindy's wrist. Hansen would brag later that he had gotten good at the process of handcuffing women at gunpoint. He had way too much practice. Then he drove Cindy to his actual home. He's getting more reckless now. Maybe part of him wants to get caught. Maybe he's just getting cocky. Thinks he can take these girls to his actual house and still get away with it. He forces Cindy inside, drags her down to the basement. Excuse me, once down there, she saw all those trophy mounts on the walls. Robert then handcuffed Cindy naked to a pillar in the center of the room where she was repeatedly raped and sodomized for hours, casually took a nap. After five hours in Hanson's basement, Cindy had to relieve herself, but Hanson was asleep and he'd warned her not to wake him up. She had to pee on a towel. When Robert finally woke up, he made Cindy get dressed, then re-handcuffed her, drove her to the Merrill Field Airport where he pulled up alongside his small blue and white aircraft. On the way there, Robert told her they were going to fly up to his cabin in the Alaskan wilderness, told her he had taken lots of girls up there, quote, for fun. Cindy saw her chance to escape as they arrived at the plane, and the hunter got out. She pushed through the driver's door, ran towards the lights of Fifth Avenue. As she ran, she could she could hear Hanson shouting, stop you, bitch, stop or I'll kill you. Or more likely, stop, you bitch, stop. Damn it! Cindy never looked back. As she reached the road, she saw a truck's headlights approaching her, waved it down, still in handcuffs. The driver, 36 year old Robin Yount, slammed on his brakes. Cindy jumped back into the truck, screaming, He's going to kill me. Yount sped off with her, uh, with her in the truck, as instructed by Cindy. He took her to the Mush Inn Motel. It's probably founded by some relative of mine. Uh, I, I would I would I would open the Mushmouth the Mushmouth Motel next. Uh, when he got there, Cindy demanded to be let out. Yount, uh, Yount drove on to where he worked, and then immediately called the police. Sergeant Glenn Flothy said if Yount hadn't called the police, Cindy would have not reported it. Yount, through a phone call, put Hanson back into police scrutiny. Need more good citizens? Can't do it alone. Good job, Yount. Next to the former Brewers baseball masher Robin Yount, you're my favorite Yount. You're my Robert Yount, second favorite Yount to Robin Yount. Officer Greg Baker of the Anchorage Police Department called to room 110 of the Big Timber Motel. When he entered the room, 
He came upon a deeply agitated Cindy Paulson, her hands still secured in front of her with handcuffs. She had a single demand, get these handcuffs off my wrists. He did, and then he took Cindy to a hospital to have a sexual sexual assault exam completed on her. The examination revealed vaginal bruising, the shackle marks around her neck and wrists corroborate her, you know, corroborated her story of being abducted. She was taken to Anchorage Police Headquarters to be interviewed. Cindy managed to give police detailed descriptions of Robert's house, his car, his plane, his looks. Didn't take the police long to find him. When police interrogated Robert, he told them he was going to take Cindy out for a nice romantic weekend getaway. He said he was shocked that she wanted to escape. This lunatic said, and I'm reading this verbatim. I'm not adding stutters this time. These uhs that I'm reading are actually written in. He said, uh, I, I told her, you know, I was going to take her um, uh, out. Uh, I wanted I wanted to since I, I, I told her the truth. I was going to take her out and, and we was going to spend the, the weekend together. Uh, but I, I couldn't fly at this time because it was dark, you know, and you can't fly the damn airplane in the dark. That was the reason for waiting. Um, then I waited uh, until that uh, I could see out that it was beginning to um, get light. So as uh, um, I could, uh, I went and got her and uh, 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 put her in my car and uh, I drove her out to the airport and uh, uh, I, I, I drove her up to the uh, to my airplane and I got out and started to put the seat in my airplane. And uh, when I got putting that seat in the airplane, she she got out of the airplane and ran around the, the, the hangar there, polar air, airways, and uh, uh, left. Then I left and drove to my home. Uh, then it just says pause. I I, I went in. Uh, I I drove back back to my home. So I mean that I, I mock this guy. That that is kind of how he spoke. This guy reminds me of an evil, evil uh, Elmer Fudd. <laughs> I kept thinking that during the research. I, ho- I hope you can help me, Mr. Game Warden. I've been told I can shoot wabbits, mongooses, pigeons, dirty skunks, and ducks. Can you tell me what, what season it really is? Kill the wabbits, kill the wabbits. Overall, Hansen, cooperative, polite, did not demonstrate any characteristics that suggested guilt, although strangely calm, for someone, you know, falsely accused of what he was accused of, Hansen gave a detailed account of his movements, claiming that his wife and family were away in Europe and that he had been with two friends, John Sumrall and John Henning, at the time he was accused of raping Cindy. Both men, when interviewed, did back up his story. Hansen readily agreed to police searching his house, car and airplane, signed waivers, agreeing to all that stuff. Hansen had begged those guys, by the way, to back him up telling them that a prostitute has mad at him over a previous money disagreement was trying now to uh, falsely incriminate him and destroy him. He guilt-tripped these guys into giving him an alibi, talking about how if they didn't, his wife and kids would have their lives ruined. When police searched his house, it became clear from Cindy's detailed description that she had been there and that she'd also been in the car. However, once again, it came down to this he said, she said, the word of a respected local businessman, this time with an alibi against that of a prostitute with a police record. And, and then, upset that the police just didn't believe her over Hansen, Cindy refused to take a lie detector, and that convinced William Dennis to close the case. However, another officer, Greg Baker, the policeman who'd taken Cindy's complaint, did still believe her, thank God. And he, and he kept thinking she was telling the truth, keeping Hansen in mind as more women went missing, waiting to catch him. Around this time, Anchorage investigators received an FBI profile on the man killing these prostitutes. The profile said that the killer would be an experienced hunter with low self-esteem, have a history of being rejected by women, and would feel compelled to keep souvenirs of his murders, such as the victim's jewelry or even body parts. The profile also said that the man would likely be in his 40s and likely married to a woman who is deeply religious and oblivious to his crimes. Obviously, Hansen fits this profile perfectly. 
On September 2nd, 1983, three months after the rape and kidnap of Cindy Paulson, a third grave found on the banks of the Kinnick River. The victim identified as another of the missing topless dancers, this time 17-year-old Paula Golding. Paula had been murdered in the exact same way as Sherry Morrow, you know, also been redressed after death. Officer Greg Baker, still convinced Hansen is the man, looked into Hansen's background now and personal life back in the days before internet databases made this easy. Hansen eventually found the paperwork on Hansen revealing his prior convictions and prior charges against him. And then the Butcher Baker case set a legal precedent in 1983 when psychological profiling was used as the main basis for issuing search warrants on Hansen's property. A report detailing Greg Baker's suspicions and a copy of Hansen's criminal record were sent to Sergeant Glenn Flothy of the Alaskan State Troopers, who was heading the Topless Dancers Task Force. Flothy agreed that Hansen should be considered a suspect, and he began his own investigation into Hansen's background. The more he learned, the more he became convinced he'd found his killer. And Flothy decided to reopen the Cindy Paulson case in an attempt to obtain evidence against Hansen. Sergeant Flothy put in a shitload of work determining Hansen had to be the guy. You know, the muscle inside his skull working overtime for weeks and weeks to do what an investigator with a computer now could do in a few minutes. Flothy conducted a systematic review of the state's missing persons data. Slowly and methodically, he developed a matrix of possible serial murder victims, one that included pictures of the women, their files, the dates they were last seen, anything else he could come up with. You know, if it fit, it went on this list. Classic old school detective work, you know, that we've watched in so many, you know, true crime movies. I love it. Flothy would later state it was tedious work sorting through their their disrupted lives. There were women who had fought with abusive lovers and presumably left town for good, leaving nothing but a few darkened one-minute photos behind. There were teenage runaways, some missing one night, found the next, many more cast adrift to become who knows what. From this tragic assemblage, Flothy was able to compile eight similar cases. What Flothy was looking for was a pattern, and he found it. With one exception, the victims were in their 20s. They ranged in height from 5'4 to 5'7, weighed between 120 and 125 pounds, were slim and usually busty. Whoever was kidnapping and or killing these young women had a definite type. And when Cindy Paulson's file came across his desk, Flothy immediately saw she fit this type. Flothy re-interviewed Hansen's friends, Henning and Sumrall, about Hansen's alibi and informed them that he was threatening to charge them with perjury. The threat worked. Both men admitted they lied to help Hansen out. That, you know, Hansen told them, you know, he was in this embarrassing domestic situation. When both men retracted their statements, an order was issued for Hansen's arrest. Fucking hell, Nimrod. Investigators followed Hansen to his bakery, asked him to come with them to the police station for questioning on October 27th, 1983. They did right after they bought all his remaining donuts and asked him if it was possible to preserve them for months and slowly enjoy them day after day later. Uh, they didn't do that, but I wish they did. All right, buddy, hands in the air. You're under arrest. Actually, wait, hands back down. What's the, what's in the oven right now? Holy shit, that smells divine. Is that maple bars? How long till they're done? Okay, all right, 15 minutes. Uh, we're gonna sit here and have some coffee. You mind popping them out? Then, ha, don't go anywhere because we're gonna arrest the fuck out of you after you take out those maple bars. When he was arrested, Hanson never even bothered to ask why. They wanted to talk to him, agreed to go along. Just calm and collected. At the Anchorage Trooper Station, Sergeant Flothy had stage managed an interview room following pointers from the FBI. I think this is so cool, the effort they put into this. Hansen was placed in an interview room, carefully set up for this exact interrogation. I, I love it. I love stories about people doing their jobs so fucking thoroughly and well. 
I got a, I got a hard work boner right now. Rock hard over thoroughness. There were maps of the Knick River along the walls, pictures of the grave sites, the victims on the desk. There were files and folders with the names of Hansen's family, friends, acquaintances. Robert was intentionally left to sit in a room dedicated to him. Sit there, get, you know, get uncomfortable. Let him look at the maps. Let him look at all the pictures and the names. Let it all sink in. But they fucking had him. They watched him through a two-way mirror. A little while later, Flothy and Sergeant Daryl Galen entered the room began an interview with Hanson that would last for five hours. While Hanson's being interviewed, another team of officers searching his house and plane. They find weapons throughout the house, but the weapon they need to find, the one that he used in those murders, they can't find. Towards the end of the interrogation, after all this work, it was starting to look like Hanson might actually get away with it. He's not spilling any beans. But then right before calling it a day, one of the officers searching Hanson's home discovers a hidden space tucked away in the attic rafters. Behind some wooden paneling in his trophy room, police find items of cheap jewelry. More trophies that would soon be traced back to dead victims. Among the significant items, Hansen had kept a fish necklace that had been custom made for victim Andrea Altieri. There were also newspaper clippings, a driver's license to some of the victims, various ID cards. Then the police found the most damning evidence of all, the Ruger Mini-14 hunting rifle. Hansen had used to kill multiple women. Uh, multiple women? What am I even saying? Uh, multiple women. It was hidden under some floorboards. Well done, Anchorage PD. Get this motherfucker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, ballistics testing would soon prove that the gun that they found was the gun used to kill Sherry Morrow and others. And then the cherry on the evidence Sunday, investigators find an aviation map of the Anchorage region dotted with 20 drawn on asterisks. Those Hanson X's. These uh, three of these corresponded with sites where bodies had already been found. Hanson, of course, initially denied any connection with the murders. But when confronted with insurmountable evidence, he decided to confess. He admitted that the asterisks on the map were the grave sites of prostitutes that he had murdered. And then Hanson told investigators that he hadn't killed every girl, hadn't killed them all, as if that made him a decent dude, as if they'd understand that he'd only killed, you know, the bad ones. He claimed that he only wanted oral sex, and if the girls complied, they were flown home. No big whoops. All in good fun. And then he told them that if they resisted, if they rejected him, that he'd force them to strip at gunpoint and then make them run. And he told him some more even, uh, uh, you know, or he told him more just disturbing shit. He said these naked and afraid women would usually be given a head start and, then, and that Hansen would stalk and hunt them like an animal. Sometimes this sadistic fuck would allow them to think they'd escaped, then track them down again, capture them, rape them again, then make them run again. This would continue until they were too cold and exhausted to continue running and then he'd shoot and kill them. On November 3rd, 1983, an Anchorage grand jury returned four indictments against this piece of shit. Uh, they were first degree assault and kidnapping, five counts of mis misconduct and possession of a handgun, theft in the second degree, theft of deception and insurance fraud. His bail was set at half a million dollars. And don't worry, more charges are coming. These are just the quickest ones they can make stick. On November 20th, 1983, ballistics test results came back from the FBI crime lab in Washington, D.C. Officials determined that the shell casings found at the grave sites had been fired from uh, Hansen's rifle. The firing pin, the extractor markings were identical. On February 18th, 1984, Hansen pled guilty to four counts of first-degree murder in the cases of Paula Goodling, Joanna Messina, or Joanna Messina, Sherry Morrow, and the Eklutna Annie. Hansen had his defense attorney, Fred Dewey, arrange a meeting with Anchorage DA, Victor Crum. During the meeting, Crum offered Hansen a deal, and this is where the story gets shitty again. In exchange for a full confession, 
in exchange for helping investigators locate all the bodies, the DA agreed to only sentence him to 12 years in prison. In 1992, he'd be paroled early for good behavior. In 1995, he would open a new bakery in Fairbanks, a bakery that closed when Hanson retired with a lot of money in 2011. Now 80 years old, Hanson lives currently with his wife, Gloria, in Fairbanks. And unfortunately, that takes us out of today's Time Suck Timeline. Good job, soldier. Kidding, of course. That would fucking suck. That's how this ended. Now, in exchange for a full confession, prosecutors guaranteed Hanson that he would only be charged with the four cases of murder that they knew of, that he would be able to serve his time in a federal facility rather than a maximum security institution. The deal also stipulated that the press would not be involved, which I think is how Hanson's kids were able to be kept out of the papers. After both sides signed off on the agreement, Hanson gave police a 12-hour confession during which he admitted to killing 17 women and burying their remains in the wilds outside of Anchorage. Here is Hanson describing one of his typical abductions. Minus the stutters, just because it'll take forever if I did it that way. It'd be another two hours. I pull out the gun. I think the standard speech was, look, you're a professional. You don't get excited. And you know there's some risk to what you've been doing. If you do exactly what I tell you, you're not going to be hurt. You're just going to count us off as a bad experience and be a little more careful next time who you are going to proposition or go out with. I tried to act as tough as I could to get them as scared as possible. Give that right away, even before I started talking at all. Reach over, you know, and hold that head back and put a gun in her face and get them to feel helpless, scared right there, I'm sure. Maybe it's not the same procedure for you. You always try to get control of the situation. So some things don't start going bad, maybe. I've seen some cop shows on TV. I don't know, okay? I love these trying to fucking relate to them. It's a lot like what you do. It's like, you know how you like, I mean, you like arrest people and, you know, and put handcuffs off them and read on the rights and stuff. And I, I put a gun to women's heads and force them to suck my dick. It's like, it's, it's a very similar profession. If you look at it from a way that doesn't make sense. Hansen also indicated that he began killing as early as 1973, told investigators that once he had a victim under his control and up in the woods near his cabin, hunting them was like going after a trophy doll sheep or a grizzly bear. For a little more insight into the mind of Hansen, here's a portion of his confession to District Attorney Victor, Victor Crum. Crum asked, why did you drive out to the road instead of just going to a hotel or a motel in town? This is talking about some of the early killings. You know, he's, uh, Hansen says, you know, if you go to a motel or something with it, it's more or less like a prostitution deal. I'm going and, or you, I, you know, I guess I'm trying to even convince myself maybe I wasn't really buying sex. It was being given to me in the aspect that I was good enough that it was being given to me. See, it's that fucking psychology of like, he's just still in high school. He still just wants girls that he's attracted to. Just, just give me what I want. Uh, if I can explain that a little bit better, gentlemen. I love when pieces of shit use terms like gentlemen. Like when they're talking about the most horrific things, it always makes me extra angry. And someone's like, okay, so, you know, a lot of times I would just fucking rape them for hours and just, you know, make them think that they were going to die and talk about how they were pieces of shit. And I was going to, you know, find their family later and fucking kill them too. I mean, listen, gentlemen, Sorry about the language, but let me share some more details of what a piece of, uh, I almost said, <laughs> what, of crap, what, of crap I am. Um, he says, going back in my life, way back to my high school days and so forth, I was, I guess, what you might call very frustrated, upset all the time. Yeah. I would see my friends and so forth going out on dates. I think he's using the term friends here very loosely. And so forth and had a tremendous desire to do the same thing. From the scars and so forth on my face, you can probably see. I could see why girls wouldn't want to get close to me. And when I'm nervous and upset like this here, if I, ha, I'll try to demonstrate if I think about exactly what I'm going to say. 
And if I talk slow, I can keep myself from stuttering. But at the time, during my junior high or high school days, I could not control my speech at all. I was always so embarrassed and upset with different people making fun of me that I hated the word school. I guess this is why I burned down the bus way back in Iowa. I can remember going up and talking to someone, a man or a woman, classmate or whatever, start to say something, start to stutter so badly that especially in the younger years, I would run away crying, run off someplace and hide for a day or so. The worst was that I was the rebuttal of all the girls around the school and so forth. The jokes, if I could have faced it, I know now I could have faced it and laughed along with them. Then it would have stopped, but I couldn't at the time and it just, it got so it controlled me. I didn't control it. Jeez, I mean, he really did let the anger and shame of getting shot down in high school build a rage inside of him that would lead to killing women. He was that angry, right? Over 20 years after graduating, over childhood disses. Man, fuck high school, junior high. It's six years. Seven if you count sixth grade. Nothing in the big scheme of things. Get the fuck over it. I don't feel sorry for this guy. Oh, boo-hoo, you got bullied. Now you're using that as an excuse to, to kill people. Go fuck yourself. And then Robert said why he chose prostitutes for victims. I didn't start to hate all women. As a matter of fact, I would venture to say I started to fall in love with every one of them. Every one of them became so precious to me because I wanted their, I wanted their friendship. I wanted them to like me so much. On top of things that have appeared, or excuse me, on top of things that have happened, I don't want to, I'm not saying that I hate all women. I don't, quite to the contrary. If, I guess in my own mind, what I'm classifying is a, a good woman, not a prostitute. I do everything in my power, any way, shape, or form to do anything for her and to see that no harm ever came to her. But I guess prostitutes are women I'm putting down as lower than myself. I don't know if I'm making sense or not. And you know, when this started to happen, I wanted, you know, it happened the first time there, you know, and I went home and I was literally sick to my stomach. Over the years, I've gone in many topless and bottomless bars in town and so forth and never, never touched one of the girls there in any way, shape or form until they asked. It's like, it's like it was a game. They had to pitch the ball before I could bat. They had to approach me first saying about uh, I get off at a certain time. We could go out and have a good time or something like this here. If they don't, we weren't playing the game right. They had to approach me. I've talked to, I suppose I made it a point to try to talk to every girl in there. Sometimes if I thought there was a possibility that she didn't say it the first time, but she might come back and say it again. Now I've invited two or three table dances with her and comment to her how nice she looked and everything else. I try to keep it in a joking tone. Gosh, you know, you sure would be something, you know, for later on. But that's as far as it would go until she then had to, to make, I guess, play out my fantasy. She had to come out and say, we could do it, but it's going to cost you some money. Then she was no longer, I guess, what you might call a decent girl. I didn't look down at the girls dancing. What the hell? They're just trying to make a buck. And then Flothy said, but when they propositioned you, that made things different. And then Hanson said, yes. I don't totally buy this prostitute's explanation. I think he chose them because it was easier to approach them. It was easy to kind of see the goods, if you will, see what he wanted, and then just easier to get away with killing them. He's just all, this is all him just trying to somehow make himself look like less of a fucking monster. As part of that plea deal, Robert agreed to help detectives uncover where he'd buried many of his victims. This was a task Hansen seemed to sickly enjoy. The butcher baker showed investigators 17 grave sites in the Connect River Valley, 12 of which were unknown to the police. During a helicopter tour of the grave sites, he would frequently become visibly excited, reliving the murders over and over in his head. Handcuffed, Hansen would plow through chest-high snow drifts and triumphantly point out graves of his victims. He was loving this. Sometimes he'd drop to his knees and dig furiously with his bare hands, 
wild-eyed with a broad grin on his face. He's a fucking psycho. By the end of 1984, 11 bodies had been found of a probable 21, 10 of which had been formally identified. Then on February 27th, 1984, Robert Hansen, who had not shown a flicker of remorse to any of these women, sentenced to 461 years plus life without the possibility of parole, less than three hours later, sent to the Lemon Creek Prison in Juneau. Mr. Hansen told Alaska State Troopers he'd also raped more than 30 additional women that he didn't kill. More trophies. Wanted to make sure those extra 30 rapes were put on his record. Years earlier, he wanted people to know exactly how big the animals were that he'd kill with a, with a bow. Now he wanted the world to know how many women he'd hurt. When he was sentenced, Judge Moody, citing Mr. Hansen's previous records of abduction and either attempted or actual rape of prostitutes, said regarding our, how our culture views prostitutes, I cannot think of a bigger indictment of society than we have here. This gentleman here has been known to us for several years, he said. We've turned him loose several times. Prostitutes had complained about how Hansen had treated them long before he was apprehended, but the police had doubted their credibility because of their profession. Assistant District Attorney Frank Rothschild added, three of the four murders Mr. Hansen pleaded guilty to were committed in the period that he would have been in prison had he served the full five years. Rothschild also told the judge, before you sits a monster, an extreme aberration of a human being who has walked amongst us. Not even his wife of 20 years had any inkling of his dark, evil side. His crimes numbed the mind. In 1988, Hansen became one of the first inmates in the new maximum security Spring Creek Correctional Center in Seward, moved there because it was discovered that Hansen was collecting material, including aeronautical maps that indicated he was trying to escape from Lemon Creek. After two years of having her children harassed at school, Mrs. Hansen filed from divorce, for divorce from Robert. Can't believe she waited two years. She moved with her uh, their two kids to the lower 48 states, and I'm guessing changed their names. And then no one in Hansen's family ever contacted him again. And then on August 21st, 2014, Robert Hansen finally passed away. He died at the age of 75 at the Alaska Regional Hospital in Anchorage due to an undisclosed lingering health condition. For his final meal, he had two chocolate long johns, one vanilla frosty with sprinkles on half of it, a French cruller, and a glazed old fashioned. And his final words were, I'll see you all in. Damn it! I'll see you in. <laughs> ah, f- fuck it. And that takes us out of today's Time Suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. To be clear, I, of course, made up his final meal. <laughs> final last words. Uh, that is the real story of the Butcher Baker. Hansen was the most active serial killer in Alaskan history. One has to wonder if Robert Hansen ever read Richard Connell's 1924 short story, The Most Dangerous Game. The book recounts the story of an esteemed old war general. Bored with trapping animals, he lures a big game hunter to his island, forces his ship to be wrecked, and then challenges him to a competition. The point of the competition is that the general will hunt the hunter for three days. And should he elude him, the general will allow the hunter to live. In the end, the hunter emerges victorious, though the tale alludes to the fact that the moral ambiguity of hunting shall perhaps never be resolved. Since Connell's story was published in 1924, the concept of a man hunting man for sport has captivated people. I mean, just think about the Hunger, Hunger Games movies, you know? Thankfully, that's just fiction. While, unfortunately, Robert Hansen was all too real. Time now for today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, 
Robert Hansen became known as the butcher baker because, you know, he was a baker. And people like alliteration, so the press added the word butcher. Again, weird combo. Murder and donuts. Number two, Hansen committed the only known killing spree in which multiple women were flown into the wilderness, released, and then literally hunted like animals. Thank God we don't know of other serial killers doing this. Number three, Hansen's case set up a legal precedent in 1983 when psychological profiling was used as the main basis for issuing search warrants on Hansen's property. Since then, psychological profiling has become a big part of the hunt for the 25 to 50 serial killers walking the American streets at any given moment. Number four, because of the sex worker stigma that prostitutes had, they received less help from the law and their murders were given arguably much less press than they would have been given if they uh, would have been quote unquote, you know, normal women. Hansen got away with rape many times because he, like so many other serial killers, preyed on some of the most vulnerable, some of the least valued members of society. We got to work on reducing that stigma, reducing that judgment. Uh, A longtime friend of the show would like to add uh, to that message, uh, in his own words, a guy who really, truly uses his own words. Bye-bye, playboy. Bye-bye. No reason to look down on working, girl. We all just somebody's clown. We all somebody's fool. We'll make a baker think you're better than a hooker. Slanging carbs and sugar, you just a diabetes pusher. Not getting paid to touch a stranger's taint. Don't automatically make yourself a saint. Rationalizing murder and rape. Poor Robert Hansen. All sour grapes. Because he wasn't no good at romancing. That was Chicken Joe's way of saying that not being a prostitute doesn't make you better than being a prostitute. And instead of judging them, maybe you should just focus on yourself. And I think he also just took a shot at uh, Bob Stutter. Number five, last takeaway, something I didn't mention. Mr. Hansen was the subject of a decent 2013 film I watched to kind of get into the mindset for this suck, The Frozen Ground. Stars Nicolas Cage as an Alaskan state trooper investigating the slains. Actor John Cusack portrays Mr. Hansen. Vanessa Hudgens plays the prostitute and victim in the film who survived. It's not amazing. But if you uh, are really interested in this topic, you might want to check it out. It's, it's fun to watch Nicolas Cage just play Nicolas Cage in almost every movie he's in, including this one. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Robert Hansen sucked. Another example of how not to live your life. Do make tasty donuts. Don't hunt people in the woods. We were having a lot of dark laughter at uh, Hansen's expense the past few hours here in the Suck Dungeon. Just uh, Joe and I just thinking about how, you know, he would be like during consensual sex. Like what if he was like a dirty talker with his wife? What if, like, what if he stuttered so long they would go from present to past tense in situations? Just like, do you, do you c- 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 care? Do you, do you c- c- care if I c- 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 Do you care if I c- 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 do, you, do you care if I c- 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 I, just, I just came. <laughs> oh my God, what a piece of shit. Uh, thanks to the Time Suck team. Thanks to Queen of the Suck, Lindsay Cummins, High Priest of the Suck, Harmony Velikamp, Jesse Guardian of Grammar Dobner, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, Time Suck High Priest, Alex Dugan, the guys at Bit Elixir, Danger Brain, Axis Apparel. Thanks to Zach, script keeper Flannery, for going dark with me in the research this week. Next week on Time Suck, we tackle a subject that was considered the trial of the century when it occurred in 1994. Former National Football League superstar, broadcaster, actor O.J. Simpson tried on two counts of murder for the June 12th, 1994 gruesome murders of his ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and her friend, Ron Goldman. Over 90 million people watched the final verdict of the trial. And about as many were watching his famous white Bronco when OJ took police on one of the slowest chases in LA history. 
While there's a ton known about the case and trial itself, we want to take an in-depth look at OJ's life before and after the killings of Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman. That's what I'm curious about. We'll still touch on the trial, but there was so much life led before and after it. This time stuck isn't a murder mystery. We know OJ killed his wife and a friend. This episode will be the story of OJ Simpson's rise from poverty to record-breaking athletic greatness, then his unforgettable fall. We'll also follow OJ's unfortunate life choices after the trial of the century. From a series of stupid crimes, a handful of accidental admissions of guilt, to his epic and not at all ridiculous rap song and video put out in 2006, join us next week for a time suck on OJ Simpson that I've been looking forward to for quite some time. And now some time sucker updates. Keep in mind, all of these are from a few weeks ago. So nothing since last week's Revolutionary War suck. Updates. Get your time sucker updates. First update comes in from a kick-ass sucker. I'm going to leave her name anonymous because I don't want her to get in trouble. She writes, His suckerness, the mother sucker. I may or may not be a normal mom. I am the one that drops the kiddo off in the morning as my husband needs to be to work earlier than I. Anyway, we listen to a lot of podcasts on the drive and sometime in the middle of a time suck that I, don't, that I just don't want to turn off, uh, I'll keep listening. My little man is named Jack. He's five years old and completely obsessed with the Mothman episode. He loves creepy shit. <laughs> I love little Jack. Anyway, my husband also appreciates the suck, but does not like it when I let Jack listen because obviously the content is a little mature and also because my kid remembers everything and it would not be out of the question for him to recite the clean wean commercial at a family function. Jack loves a good commercial and recommending good products. I feel like I'm a rebel because my parents wouldn't even let me watch PG-13 movies until I was 12. So even though I know it may not be appropriate, in the end, my need to rebel against my denial of PG-13 movies has made me say fuck it. For real though, it's hilarious how many times I hear myself say to Jack, no, that was a bad word. Please do not repeat it. Or, Suckmaster is an adult and can swear. You are a kid, so you can't. Or just don't repeat any of what you just heard. It could be a drinking game, actually. And Jack always asks, Mom, can we listen to Time Suck? I won't tell dad. <laughs> Recently, I finished the Annalise Michelle suck. My kid likes creepy shit. And he was very interested in the discussion of burned shit. Oh, that's right. The smell of burned poo. And, and before he went to the bathroom, he had to remind me that human poo is the worst smelling poo. I am getting a little ADD here, but a tangent on that suck. I actually wrote a scholarly research paper for my undergrad degree on whether or not exorcisms do more harm than good and if they should still be performed. I was inspired after the ex exorcism of Emily Rose came out, which is based on Michelle's story. I did most of my research at night after work, and even though I found myself, you know, or I find myself more than a little agnostic, I had a hard time reading Hostage to the Devil. I would think, damn, so like if the devil is real, is what I'm going to do make me more susceptible to the devil? Am I going to get possessed? Is it too late to find a new topic? Start a new project? Why the fuck did I pick this topic? If you were able to follow my train of thought, you're one of the few and rock on. Thanks for adding to one of the many random things that my kid and I bond over. Also me and my husband, just not all together. Anonymous. Thank you, Anonymous. You sound like a fun mom. You sound like a fun mom to me. You sound like you communicate a lot with your kid, which is so important, obviously. Uh, Glad Time Suck is a place where you and your son can enjoy the same humor, where you and your husband can enjoy that same humor as well, even though it's not at the same time. And uh, and I know you did sign your name, uh, but I'll mess it. But I just I wanted to give you a chance to deny sending this. If your husband gets mad, it's like, come on, I know it's you. No, you don't. No, you don't, dude. Could be all kinds of little jacks out there talking about clean wings, talking about poo. Why don't you Why don't you calm down? You don't know. Uh, Soon-to-be dad, J.D. Toner, sends in some hilarious fake angst, born out of temporary but real panic. J.T. writes, Dan, you bastard. I took a break from the podcast to binge others, and I'm now catching back up. 
I just started on the last suck of 2018. Will I do some side work to earn a little extra cash because my wife is pregnant with our first child? We go tomorrow morning for our initial long appointment with the OBGYN to learn what to expect, what insurance we'll pay versus what we'll be responsible for, et cetera. And you're here talking about how processed peanut butter is so terribly bad for developing fetuses. We believe processed foods are a legitimate concern and you had me freaking the fuck out because my wife loves peanut butter, one of her only quote unquote vices, and it, and she eats it all the time. I'm here thinking that while she's eating healthy during the pregnancy, no, now we're actually dooming our future child to a likely life with no limbs. Fuck you, you stupid asshole. <laughs> I hope my unborn limbless child still has some type of cock, even if it's soft to fuck you. Uh, Chikatilo soft shamecock style when he comes of age. That's a weird hope for your kid. Hail Nimrod, you hilarious fuckhead. Here's the hoping for a completely healthy, strong dick Luciferian worshiper to pay you back for this worry with some sweet, sweet, no shamecock fucking once uh, this kid hits puberty. JT Toner. Ah, oh, thank you, JT. I forgot about that one. I forgot about how eating peanut butter makes, makes it so your kid doesn't have uh, limbs. I've told so many ridiculous lies. I was thinking for a second you were talking about uh, when I told people that if you did this one thing, you'd end up with an ant baby that would have an exoskeleton. Uh, next update. And then congrats on the uh, upcoming baby. For real. Uh, next update from the awesome sucker, Justin Anderson. Messages like these motivated us to do uh, the best job we possibly can here. Justin writes, Dear Lord, Master Dr. Suckington Walker Bojangles, retriever of his mighty turds. I like that one. I'm a huge fan of stand-up comedy. It is because of this love that I started to listen to and became a great fan of yours in or around 2012. Your Pandora station has led me to find such great artists as Chad Daniels, K. Trevor Wilson. The first suck I listened to was H.H. Holmes, and I've been hooked ever since. The Black Dahlia suck was one I had waited a long time for. You brought a level of clarity to a subject that had been waiting for an unbiased hand to show it some light. I have read many accounts of the killing. Most were written from the perspective of someone trying to solve what is seemingly unsolvable. Many a writer has taken on a horrific murder. Truman Capote, you are no Truman Capote. <laughs> that, that's fair. Uh, Dan Bojangles, I'm sorry. Okay, okay, Dan is way better than Truman Guy. Whatever, I was distracted. Back to the episode. I had never heard the story without a writer's bias. This was honestly the first time I heard Elizabeth Smart's story without someone claiming to know who had killed her. Or Elizabeth Short, yeah, Elizabeth. I think there was another Elizabeth uh, Smart, though. Uh, you taught me more in one podcast about the life and death of the unfortunate Miss Short than any three novels or shit movies. Thank you. I've been curious for years and now I can bury my curiosity. Just kidding. We will always be curious. Well, thank you because I'm always worried that in two hours, we just can't fit enough. And I get worried that I, I don't want to add so many details that it becomes what I myself couldn't listen to early on, which is overly detailed podcasts that just I just tune out because they're not engaging. But then also I get annoyed with so many podcasts that they're just literally just skimming off a Wikipedia page and just kind of half-ass throwing details out throughout a lot of banter. And I can't follow that either. So I'm happy for you, at least. We're walking the line in, in, in a good way. That makes me feel real good. And now before I get too full of myself, a pronunciation update from Lisa thompson Clap from the Black Dahlia episode. Lisa writes, Dear Lord Suckmaster Supreme, he who is most unholy. Now that the pleasantries are out of the way, I have a pronunciation correction for the Black Dahlia suck. Imagine my surprise when you mention my hometown. And I, uh, it's Oh yeah, you say it's Lompoc. Lompoc, California. When you're talking about the Vandenberg Air Force Base. You, like countless others, Pronounce it as Lompoc when it is in fact Lompoc. The pronunciation issue is one of the bane of my town's existence. E even people from neighboring towns say it incorrectly. So I had to jump on that one. Anyway, my husband and I have been longtime fans of comedy after discovering the suck last year. I'm a weekly listener. Love what you do. Keep on sucking. Hail Lucifina. Hail Lucifina. Thank you, Lisa. And thanks for that correction. Yeah, sometimes it is tricky unless you're unless you're there. And last, 
a very negative <laughs> iTunes review. You know, I'm sharing this because I almost always choose to share positive messages because I don't want to encourage, you know, negativity. There's plenty of that on the web. You can find it easily. And honestly, most messages we do get are positive. But, you know, uh, plenty of people don't like, you know, what I do. I don't want you to think I'm just like, oh, everything's fucking great. Everybody loves me. I know they don't. And I decided to check uh, recent ratings and reviews of Time Suck on iTunes the other day and uh, just to see what the general consensus is. And one person's specific hatred made me laugh so hard. Uh, I, know, I know a lot of you are also creative types. And, and while you obviously want to create art that pleases, you know, someone, hopefully someone in addition to yourself, you know, possibly lots of people, you know, that does feel good. Just never forget that you can't please everybody. You just can't, no matter what you do. So don't let the negativity of certain people get you down. Just, you got to learn to laugh at it. And uh, I for sure cannot please Jake92786, who left a one-star review <laughs> and wrote the dramatic final straw as a subject line. That alone, I was like, oh, okay, final straw. And then Jake wrote, the Black Dahlia is the last episode I'll listen to. Within the first 20 minutes, about 10 minutes was him joking around his long, unfunny tangents. In fact, the first thing he talks about in this episode is a joke. I get the joking lightens the mood and can help listening, but come on, about a murder? Well, then you actually you actually don't get it then. And spend five minutes joking about her dad being a miniature gold, <laughs> miniature golf maker? Seriously. Listen from 1645 to 2010 and tell me this is funny. At least get the story going before joking left and right. I also never have heard someone laugh at his own jokes as much as Dan. This dude has gone too far with it. I honestly don't know how people can enjoy this anymore. Well, Jake, first off, uh, why do I think it's okay to joke about murder? Because uh, that is how they do it in Hollywood. And second, showbiz. Uh, third, it's listed in the comedy section of the podcast, you fucking halfwit. Uh, what made me laugh in this review almost as much as I laugh at my own jokes is the specific time code detail. I love that he hated this episode so much. He's listened, An episode he's listened to for free, by the way, that, that he goes back and makes time code notes. He's like, wow, fucking where exactly do I hate this the most? Uh, from 1645. Ah, I got to keep listening. No, that, I hate that, but not, oh wait, I don't quite hate that. As, okay, to 2010. God damn it. Well, uh, Jake, I'm jealous of one thing about you, at least. How much free time you have. Uh, how much free time you must have to, to just write needlessly specific one-star reviews. Also, Jake, if you're mad about what I'm saying right now, go fuck yourself because you're not supposed to be listening anymore. And thank you for the laughs. I may not be able to give you any, but you've just given me so many, you know, in addition to the laughs that I give myself. I, I, think, I do think I'm pretty funny. I hope I never see you. You sound like a real bummer to be around. I uh, feel like you'd, you'd probably just get my samples real angry. Mother. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Have a great week, time suckers. Thanks to the many of you who do enjoy the show. Thanks for letting us uh, have fun here. Don't hunt anyone this week. It's really not nice. Keep on making delicious donuts if you do make them. And uh, there's one more thing. Um, keep on, sa sa sa. Keep on, sa sa sa. Keep on, sa 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 sa. Sa 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 sa. God damn it! Fuck it. Hey mom. First things first. Thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say yes. I need help. And yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. 
I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, Mom. Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.